I'd like to welcome you back to another new compilation of truly sinister tales and chilling first-hand accounts taken directly from Reddit. I hope that you're comfortable in your favorite spot, perhaps winding down with a delicious snack, or preparing to drift off into the night. I know many of you come to this channel for our terrifying stories, perfect for those who enjoy a touch of macabre before bedtime. However, we're well aware that the eerie tale shared here might not be the ideal lullaby for just everyone. That's why I'm excited to introduce you to something very special, our brand new sister channel, Zen Elevation. This is a channel that we've created as a sanctuary for those seeking relaxation, relief, and positivity. We will bring content such as sleep hypnosis, designed to guide you into a restful night's slumber, consciousness exercises that help ease anxiety, uplifting affirmations to help power you through your day. And the best part? It'll all be delivered in the same familiar, soothing voice that you've all come to know. I urge each and every one of you to check out the hours of content on our new channel and explore the tranquil oasis that we're creating. You'll find the link in the description below. Take a moment to unwind, relax, and nurture your well-being. And if you enjoy this style of content, curated specifically for you and carried out by the sounds of my voice, I would truly appreciate if you were to drop a like and to subscribe. It would help the channel tremendously to gain early support, and it would help me as a creator to continue bringing content that you as audience members enjoy. Again, find the link to our newest project, Zen Elevation, in the description below. Hours of transformative content waiting for you, with many more hours on the way. Once you've found your inner calm, be sure to make your way back here, because today, we have three hours of terror waiting for you. And so, without any further delay, let's jump right in. For reference, I work as a barista in a coffee shop inside of a larger store. I'm one of a handful of male baristas at my shop. I'm gay, and I'm very open about this. I wear pride shoes, have a pride flag attached to my name tag, and I have a couple of wristbands with rainbows and phrases like Orlando Strong. So the other day, I was working my shift at the register. A gentleman comes up to me and smiles. I think he noticed the pride flag on my name tag, but he didn't explicitly mention it at first. He says he doesn't know what to order, and asked me for my opinion. Now, I'm not a particularly devout coffee drinker, but I know what drinks fit what tastes, so I ask him what he likes, and I try to give him recommendations. As I'm talking, I can tell he's paying more attention to me than to what I'm saying, which I am completely okay with. He was a shorter but well-built man, had beautiful eyes, a nice beard, basically the perfect dilf. Eventually, he decides on a super sweet ice drink that we have, and I go to make it for him. As I'm making the drink, one of my coworkers leans over and whispers, I think that customer just took a picture of you. That was a bit of a red flag, but I thanked her and kind of brushed it off. I gave him his drink, 
and he smiles. He points to the pride flag and says, I love that flag. Where can I get one of those? I laughed and said that I got it from a pride event that I went to a few years back. He then said, and where can I get the person it's attached to? I immediately felt a rush and I began to blush, but trying to act professional, I brushed that off. He eventually takes his drink and sits at one of the tables. I continue going about my day, debating whether I should give in to this guy or not. Every now and then, I would glance at his table to see him looking at me. No matter when I looked, it seemed like he was looking directly at me. I started to get that weird feeling of heart eyes with red flags. Then I noticed that he hasn't taken a single drink from his coffee. Remember, it was an ice drink so I could see through the clear plastic cup. When I have a break and go to wipe down some of the tables, I stop by his table and ask if he didn't like the drink. And if not, I'd be glad to make him a new one free of charge. He hands me the drink and mentions he's not sure if it's too sweet for him or not and asks me to try it. I politely decline, telling him that I don't drink coffee. He's shocked and asks me why I'm working here and blah blah blah. As we're talking though, his questions start to change up. So, do you lift at all? No, not really. Well, how much do you think you could lift if you had to? The job requirement is 50 pounds to work here, so I guess at least that much. Well, I've learned that it's good to be able to lift at least half your body weight. How much do you weigh? Immediate red flags go off again. There was something about the combination of the drink and the two questions that made me feel like I was being asked how much of a fight I'd be able to hold. This put me off a little bit more than the previous two red flags, so I kindly and quickly end the conversation and head back to cleaning up the tables. As the hours go by, he continues to sit there, not drinking his drink. Other employees and a couple of managers ask if everything's okay, and he says that he's perfectly happy. Every now and then, he takes a phone call, and at one point, I swear I can see a guy on his phone at a different part of the store, talking opposite of the guy at the table. Suddenly, I start to feel like there are more eyes on me than I had initially realized. I pull one of the managers aside and tell him that I'm getting weirder and weirder feelings about the guy. The manager says that we'll keep an eye on him. Now, I was closing on this particular shift, and so as we got closer and closer to closing time, I noticed him still sitting there. When the announcement that the store is closing in a half an hour is made, he comes up to the counter and asks if he could walk me to my car after I got off. I tell him our closing duties take us at least 45 minutes after we close the doors, and he says he'd be happy to wait. I politely decline, and he asks when I work next. I tell him that I'm off for a couple of weeks. Well, then I feel like I should walk you to your car, especially if I might not see you for a couple of weeks. No way. I politely decline, and eventually he leaves. I finish my closing duties and head to the employee area. As soon as I get down there, I tell one of my managers about the situation and ask if I can take the side exit from the store. At our store, we exit out one of the main doors after we close, but there is a side door that we use to get into the building before we open and that the managers use to get out after we close. He agrees and tells me he'd walk with me to my car to make sure I'm okay if I'm cool with waiting a little while. I am. So I walk out the side doors with a couple of managers I get into my car and, as I'm driving away, 
I see a large van with extremely tinted windows parked right in front of the front door. There's no way to know for sure if my customer was in that van and if it was as ominous as I thought it was, but I know that I was not about to stay to figure it out. And I took a long and winding path home that evening. So, to the very hot guy that I sold coffee to, let's not meet. Unless, of course, I just read all of these things wrong, and you're just socially awkward, and were actually into me, and not in a creepy way that you gave off. But... This is my first time posting, and it's actually a story that I had absolutely forgotten about until recently. At the time, I just turned 17 and was still pretty naive to the world. I live in England, so it is legal to work in a bar and serve alcohol supervised, but not to drink alcohol. Not that it ever stopped me. I worked in a working men's club filled with middle-aged to elderly people, and most were really nice. I sold bingo tickets twice a week for my dad's cousin, and I was pretty good at it. It's not typical to get tips here, but I earned more in tips than I did my actual wage. On a Saturday, my dad would come with me to have a drink with my elder sister while they played competitive darts in the main bar overlooking my booth. This one particular evening, there was a middle-aged, average-looking guy, a little on the plump side but generally unnoticeable. On the first round of selling tickets, he was on the opposite side of the establishment, just sitting and drinking, looking over at me occasionally. The second round, he approached me, asked what it was that I was selling, how bingo worked, things of that nature. Clearly, he had never played before, but hey, everyone starts somewhere, right? He bought some tickets and offered to buy me a drink. I declined and informed him that I was underage. By now, I had a bit of an uneasy, creeping vibe, and I didn't want to take a drink from a guy that I didn't know anyway. He then offered a cola, complimenting me a little too hard once again. Again, I declined and went on my way to help with the game in the main hall, which is part of my job. Third time, he stood against the wall adjacent to me and just watched me as I worked. He'd waited until the queue calmed down and bragged about how much money he had and how he wants to be my sugar daddy, how cute I was, complimenting on my figure, my boobs, my butt, pretty much everything. I was pretty much trapped in my booth at this point. I was already late to get into the main hall, so the concert chairman, the guy who calls out the bingo numbers and gives out winnings, comes out and asks what's going on. This guy claims that we were just talking. I apologized to the chairman, and he walked with me into the hall, said that he could see I was freaked out, so I told him everything. He made the bar staff aware, who also made my boss, my dad's cousin, aware as well. Last round of selling tickets. The guy doesn't even wait for me to get back to my booth. He straight up grabs my ass, telling me how he wants to be my sugar daddy once more, tries to push me against the wall. But before he can continue whatever his plan is, the man is spun around by my father, my boss, and numerous staff members and customers coming to my aid. They had seen and heard what was on its way to going down. He began to argue his innocence until my dad not so politely introduced himself. The man at that point knew that he was f***ed. My dad clocked him straight in the nose, blood running down his face. As he laid there strewn about on the floor, 
everybody picked him up like a plank of wood and threw him right out the entrance door. Never saw that man again after that. Everyone checked up on me to make sure that I was okay. My sister covered for me the rest of my shift, and I was able to take a load off with family and patrons who had come to my rescue, enjoying a cola brought to me by a thoughtful, non-creepy person. In fact, I had so many people offering to buy me a pop that night that I had a free bar tab for the next two months or so. But back to it. Creepy guy that got handsy with me one night and wanted to be my sugar daddy. I can only hope that your busted nose healed just fine, but even more, that we never cross paths again. I've always wanted to share this story, and I decided to use an old throwaway account since I usually just lurk here. I have no real way of proving my credibility, but if you've ever visited or lived in a rural part of South Asia, you can probably vouch for me in saying that it's a lot more plausible than one might assume. Also, this ended up being a lot longer than I thought, but I wanted to recount it precisely the way I remembered it. I had one of those moments recently where a lot of things came together in my brain to make sense of an event that my child mind couldn't properly comprehend at the time. So my mom was born and raised in the UK, but she is of South Asian descent, and since I'm mixed, she tries really hard to make sure that I'm in touch with my culture. This meant that, as a child, we made a lot of frequent trips back home. It's like every summer I can remember was spent there, and then it just suddenly stopped after this incident. My mom's family back home live in an extremely rural part of Bangladesh. There is a lot of poverty surrounding our family home, so we rarely left our relatively nice part of the village. I was never allowed out to explore, and coming from the concrete jungle that is London, I was always so curious. I'm going to explain what happened on this one particular day the way that I remember experiencing it, and then I'll explain what I failed to realize at the time. I was eight years old then. One of my uncles from a neighboring village would often visit with his children, and when they did, my mom would let me go with them to a small hut-like shop that sold sweets and snacks maybe 15 minutes away from the family home. My cousins were 11 and 19, both male, and it was broad daylight. To get to the shop, we'd walk through a small DIY road, and on both sides is what I would call the jungle. It was basically just lots of trees and bushes as far as the eye could see. You can't really see anything beyond the trees. It's just a lot of greenery. I'm mixed with East Asian and I definitely get my looks from my dad's side. So being an obvious foreigner in a rural part of back home meant that I was pretty used to strangers staring and asking me questions. I was also used to creepy men that would tell me I was beautiful because I had pale skin. My mom warned me about these men and made sure that I knew to stay away from them. So the road to the hut was paved with creepy people making creepy comments and my cousins basically telling them to fuck off. There was also a group of young guys. Some of them had motorbikes, and some were just chilling. One of them waved at me. He seemed friendly enough. And I had met so many people that my mom was convinced I must remember from the last time that I had zero recollection of. So I just waved back and went about my day. Once we got to the hut, we immediately started losing our self-control with the snacks. 
The owner was super friendly, and he let us try a bunch of the sweet mish teas he had. This was also the first day that I'd ever tried kulfi ice cream. I distinctly remember being excited because my mom and one of the ladies that worked as a cook with us both love kulfi ice cream, so I thought it would be a nice surprise for them. I asked for three, and the nice guy gave me four, so my hands were full, and they were quickly melting. He told me to run, run, go home quickly. I told my cousins I would get a running start, and once they finished, they could catch up with me. I would still be in their line of sight, plus it was daylight, and we were on a very busy road. I start my run back. There were a few older aunties stood at the top of the road, and something about their presence gave me a sense of security. I felt a lot safer knowing that they were there, and paired with the fact that my cousins were able to see me clearly, I felt comfortable enough to just walk back leisurely, minding my business, enjoying my ice cream. I passed the group of guys, and the one that waved at me came over to me. He said, you're ex's niece, right? Ex being my uncle. And he jokingly took one of my ice creams and said, she got an ice cream for mama. Mama means uncle in our language, just so you know. And with this banter, I assumed he was a friend of my uncle's. He asked me when I arrived and how I was finding the country. He was so friendly and he didn't look like the stereotypical creep. When I said that I was going home, he said, why don't you let uncle take you? You can ride on my motorbike. He used the term uncle colloquially as if he were a friend of the family because he certainly wasn't related to us. I think that's when something clicked in my mind that he maybe wasn't the friendly uncle that I thought he was. That's when I also realized I was pretty much encircled and was surrounded by the group of guys. It's also when I realized that I could no longer see my cousins or that group of old aunties, which also meant they probably couldn't see me. I wish I could explain in words how helpless and afraid I felt at that moment. I had all the threats in the world explained to me by my mom in a country where I knew I was vulnerable and had to be cautious and I still managed to find myself in a dangerous situation. Luckily, my cousins came running and shouting, probably because I was their responsibility, and the guys ran off into the jungle. This creeped me out because there was nothing in that jungle. It was just trees as far as I could see, and I knew that it would be nearly impossible to find them in all of that. We caused quite the scene, and the villagers seemed to react as if they were already on edge. When we told my family about what had happened, I was basically on house arrest and my mom refused to let me out of her sight. I was pretty shaken up about the whole situation and so, honestly, I was kind of grateful for that. I put it down to my paranoia but, at the time, I would get overwhelming feelings of being watched. Our village is quite small, like, amongst them, it's an everyone knows everyone sort of thing. My uncle is a big community figure and he's very well known amongst the villagers, which is why the men probably put two and two together that I was his niece. Having foreign family over is usually a pretty big deal, and having a niece that is mixed race was also a very big deal. I'm sure word got around. He realized that there were a group of men on motorbikes who would frequently go past our house. They stayed a decent distance from our gate, and they weren't anyone that we would have known. It's creepy to think about now, the lengths they were going to. 
A couple of days before we were due to fly back, I had my second, last, and worst encounter with this particular friendly uncle. It was nighttime, and it was very much like every other night that we were there. We would play board games or card games in the front room. Because it was so hot, I went to my bedroom, and I began playing on my Nintendo DS. What a throwback. And that's when I saw, out of the corner of my eye, someone standing at my window, staring directly at me. It was him. The worst part is that he had the most creepy, sick, and twisted smile that I'd ever seen on a person's face. He put a finger to his lips, but I did the literal opposite and began screaming hysterically. I had been on edge since the ice cream incident, so what might seem like an overreaction was just my natural response. I can't really tell you what happened next because no one has ever told me. My very large uncle and his very large friends are not known to be the friendliest of people, but I was told that he dealt with that man and then he would never bother me again. We recently received a wedding film from one of my cousin's weddings, and part of the film was her leaving to get to the venue, and I noticed that the jungle was no longer there. It had basically been cut down. For the first time, I could see beyond the greenery. That's when my mom explained to me that my uncle had cut it down not long after that particular visit, because of the head cutters. Believe me, it sounds even more sinister in my language. My entire life, I've wondered what would have happened to me if I had gotten on that motorbike. But now, I know with reasonable certainty what that man's intentions were. During that time, a gang had been kidnapping beggar children. It took a while for the village to realize because it's not unusual for beggar children to go missing. When we were there, people were vaguely aware that it was becoming a trend. A couple of months later, a single head was found. It became known in our village, but people tried to keep it quiet to avoid getting a bad name. The problem went away once a lot of the greenery had been cleared, so there was nowhere left to hide. But it's also when they realized the magnitude of what had been happening underneath their noses. The weird thing is, I've known about the head cutters for a while. I knew it was something that had occurred in our village. But for some reason, until recently, I never put two and two together, but now that I have, I think quite often about what nearly happened to me, but more importantly, what happened to a handful of children in that little village. I think about the fact that beyond a relatively small circle, no one else thinks about them. No one is haunted by their deaths, which is like turning a knife in my soul. I've always wanted to tell someone about my experience, but it's not a topic that I really feel comfortable discussing. However, I've also always felt a lot of guilt because while I was lucky to be safe, there were children who weren't. That man still haunts my dreams, but I know that I'm very blessed to still be able to dream. I have no idea who those children were and I have no possible way of ever knowing their names or even tracing their families. But in a very, very small way, this feels like a tribute to them. We may not know their names, but every person who hears this story now knows that they existed and knows a little bit of their story. And for that, I thank you. So to the creepy uncle 
with the motorbike, let's not meet again. I wish the children that had met you never had, and I hope that no one ever has the misfortune of meeting you ever again. After binging hours and hours of these readings from the subreddit, my mind is in a dark place, though I can't entirely blame it. My brain tends to head here often. My own personal story happened about seven years ago, but requires just a little bit of background. My best friend and I grew up in a sleepy, wannabe New Jersey, central Florida town, and were the outcasts. We had met in sixth grade when I'd overheard her talking to another classmate about Bionicles, my 11-year-old self's passion. We became fast friends, and soon were inseparable. Then began the gauntlet of sleepovers, birthday parties, and family gatherings. We were practically siblings. She was the first person I'd come out to as bisexual, and in turn, I was the first person she'd told about being trans. Her home life was tumultuous, though, and I can't say mine was any better. We often had a habit of taking refuge at each other's houses. Like I said, we had become like siblings. Her father was an alcoholic, strict and prone to physical discipline. Her sister was a stuck-up girl who soon gravitated towards the jocks when we entered high school. And her mother was a pseudo-vegan, hippie love child held over from the 80s. When I was 23, herself 22 at the time, we had another long night of sleeping over in order to let her escape yet another fight with her mother. She had recently lost her job at Walmart, and I was going in to my first shift at Taco Bell the next day. On the drive home the next morning, she excitedly told me that since she now had her own vehicle, she would be applying at pizza places that were in need of a driver. I was proud of her. It was the first time she'd hunted for a job on her own, as I'd usually been the one to coax her to apply where I was working. Not that she ever lasted very long. My first training day goes by quite well. My co-workers are friendly and try to get me to talk more. My manager likes to playfully embarrass me, a fat white guy, by trying to get me to talk hood to other workers. Being that it was a training day, it wasn't a very long shift. But I had been up early in anticipation, and this was my first day on the job in a few months. I got home around noon informed some of my internet friends that my first day had gone well, and around 5 p.m., I start to wind down, drained from a good day. As I'm preparing to lay down in my bed, I get a steam message. It's my friend, lamenting another fight with her mother and asking if she could come over. Now, I had started to grow a bit weary of the fights on their end. I had begun to repair my relationship with my family and a few friends, and I had given her advice many times on how to better approach things. In my infinite wisdom and eagerness to sleep, I left the message on red and drifted off into slumber. Around 8 p.m., I'm awakened by her bursting into my room in a panic. Having just been ripped from a dream, I'm groggy and disoriented. I drag myself to the bathroom to relieve my bladder and come back to the room to find her rocking back and forth on my bed. It's at this time... I notice that she is covered in blood. So I asked what happened. She informs me that she just saw someone murder her mother with a knife. My mind goes absolutely blank. In the deepest parts of my mind, alarm bells start ringing. 
Isn't that rocking back and forth a bit overdramatic? Why didn't she call the police? But then again, this is my best friend. I've known her for over a decade now, and we were the only two people in the world that we could count on. I suppress my feelings and go inform my sister and stepfather. My mother had passed away the year prior, and it was roughly a month to the anniversary of her death. We were all in a dark place, antisocial as always. It was the only way we knew how to handle emotional issues. When I inform my family what had happened, they immediately go to the same place that I had, though they are far more vocal about it. I offer excuses I knew myself were flimsy and return to the room, phone in hand. I convinced her to call the police, and I can hear her explain the details over the phone, a story centering on a man in a black ski mask. When the cops arrive, she swears up and down that it's most likely her father. They send cars over to check the crime scene and take her in for a statement. I ride with her in the back of the cop car over to the sheriff's office, as she still seemed nearly inconsolable. It gets to be around 2 a.m. Her sister was brought in, as was her father. I have work the next morning and request to be taken home by a police officer. It takes me a while to get to sleep that morning, but as day breaks, I rise up and get ready for work and head in. I'm sitting there for most of the shift quietly when my manager asks, what's wrong? I inform him how I spent the last day, but decide to work the rest of my training shift. When I get home from work, my sister intercepts me before I have a chance to head to my room. I'm met with the most wild-eyed look that I've ever seen, and I just can't place it. Then, she says the two words that I don't think I'll ever be able to forget. She confessed. What I learned then is that my friend's mother had threatened to kick her out of the house if she couldn't find a job, and in a rage, she had taken a kitchen knife and stabbed her mother repeatedly. My mind froze like a Dell computer from the 90s, and I took my phone out. I was in a Discord call at the time, and all I could weakly say is, my best friend confessed to murdering her mother before hanging up and slamming down on my bed. Her trial started later that year, although it was something that I couldn't follow. I didn't have it in me to watch or support the person that I had once affectionately called my sister on trial for something so heinous. After it all wrapped up, my grandmother ultimately relayed to me that she had pled guilty and taken a deal for life in exchange for the death penalty coming off the table. Part of me wants to contest that because part of me believes that that is what she actually deserves, death, for ridding the earth of such a peaceful and caring woman's soul. But a larger part of me is just glad that she's being punished for her cruel and heartless act. Natalie, you are my best friend for a long time, my sister, and my platonic soulmate. But all that is just a distant memory now, and I pray that we never meet again. As an elementary school teacher for nearly 20 years, I've had my fair share of challenging students in my time. But there was one particular student, let's call him Timmy, that will always hold a spot in my memory. And once you've heard this story, you'll certainly understand why. Timmy was a quiet boy with a mop of unruly brown hair 
and big, innocent-looking eyes. He seemed like any other nine-year-old when he first entered my classroom. However, something about him struck me as unusual from the very beginning. It was as if he carried an air of darkness around him, a hidden uncertainty that I just couldn't imagine any nine-year-old having at that age. The first incident that raised alarm bells for me occurred during a quiet reading session. The classroom was nearly silent as students buried their noses in their books. But in the midst of this serene moment, I looked up and noticed Timmy staring at one of his classmates, Sarah, with a sinister expression upon his face. His eyes bore into her, cold and calculating. Sarah must have sensed his gaze upon her because she looked up and met Timmy's eyes. But she froze in place, with her face nearly draining of all color. I walked across the classroom to assess what was going on. Timmy blinked and quickly averted his gaze when he saw me approaching. Is everything okay here? I asked, trying to remain calm. Sarah nodded shakily, but her eyes were still affixed on Tommy, as if she'd seen something terrifying. I decided to let it go as an isolated incident, hoping that it was just a child's fleeting curiosity. But the next episode, I found even more unsettling. During a group activity, I caught Timmy whispering something into the ear of another student, Alex. I couldn't hear their conversation, but the look on Alex's face was enough to even give me chills. He seemed genuinely frightened at whatever Timmy had shared with him. When I approached them, Timmy stopped talking and abruptly flashed a fake, innocent smile. But Alex remained silent, looking downwards, too scared to speak up, it would seem. I pulled Timmy aside after class and tried to talk to him about his behavior. He feigned ignorance, though, claiming that he was just having a friendly chat with Alex. But his eyes? His eyes betrayed him, revealing that same sinister glint that he had had on his face when he was initially staring Sarah down. I couldn't shake the feeling that something was terribly wrong with Timmy. I reported my concerns to the school counselor, who assured me that they would look into it. But as the days passed, Timmy's behavior only grew more disturbing. He started drawing weird images in his notebooks, depicting violent scenes and menacing figures. One day during recess, I heard Timmy telling a story to a group of young boys that still resides in my head to this day. He described a scenario where he had complete control over someone, where he could control every action of theirs, every thought of theirs, where he could make them do whatever he wanted. But he didn't want to use this power for good. He expressed his desire to make his target fight, frighten, and do much worse things to other unsuspecting people. The children who listened to him were both fascinated and horrified, and it seemed as if they hung on to his every word. And this really unsettled me. I knew that I had to involve the school administration. They conducted a thorough investigation, but they couldn't find any concrete evidence of wrongdoing. Timmy's parents were called in for a meeting, but they were just as baffled by their son's behavior as we were. They assured us that they would talk to Timmy about the seriousness of his actions and do their best to quell it. Well, years passed, and I lost touch with Timmy after he moved on to middle school. But the memory of his disturbing behavior lingered in the back of my mind, like 
a shadow that refused to fade. When one evening, I'm watching the nightly news with my husband, and I happen to see a familiar face on the screen. It was Timmy, now a young adult, being led from a police car to the county jail. The news anchor reported that he had been arrested for a series of violent crimes, including assault, robbery, breaking and entering, and even allegations of torture. According to what was said, Timmy had developed a propensity for following people home from work or the grocery store, and as these people would innocently try to enter their homes, Timmy would approach them from behind and force his way in as well. Oftentimes, brutalizing and tying up these random people. It was actually one of his victims that led to him being caught. A young woman who had been surprised by Timmy waiting for her in her living room, fought tooth and nail to prevent him from tying her up and doing whatever it was that he had planned. When she was able to escape from her apartment, she flagged down the first motorist she found, and that happened to be an off-duty police officer. He was able to track down Timmy basically at the scene, finding duct tape, zip ties, gloves, and a six-inch hunting knife on him. My heart sank as I realized that the darkness I had sensed in him as a child had evolved into something far more malicious now. The news story sent shockwaves through our small community. People struggled to reconcile the quiet, innocent-looking boy that they had known with the criminal that he had become. It was a stark reminder that sometimes the most unsettling behaviors in children can foreshadow something much more sinister in the future. As I watched Timmy being led away, I couldn't help but wonder if there was something more that we could have done back in elementary school to intervene and help him. It was a chilling lesson in the unsettling truth that some stories are best left untold, and some encounters are better left unremembered. I currently work at a restaurant somewhere in the Midwest. Now, obviously, I can't say what restaurant, but it's on a pretty busy road with lots of cars and lots of people walking on the road to get to the bus stop or whatever their destination may be. The restaurant has its own parking lot where I usually will park closer to the doors. But the story I'm about to tell you is the one time that I didn't. And that night, I sincerely regret my actions. To give some backstory, a couple of years ago, I just so happened to work at the sports bar grill directly across the parking lot from my current job. I worked there for almost four months, and I have plenty of interesting stories about that place, but that's for another post. Anyway, while I worked at my previous job, I didn't have a car, so I either walked to and from work, or I got a ride. Now mind you, I would walk home at around 10pm some nights, on a barely lit road where there weren't always cars driving by. This naturally made me wary, and this was on top of the fact that older men would constantly hit on me as a minor and make me feel ever watched. This backstory of my old job might not seem important at the moment, and I didn't think it would ever become relevant again, but it matters in the end, I promise. While working at my old job, I was a minor as previously stated, but that never stopped drunken men from approaching me and being inappropriate. There was one man in particular who I never forgot about and who came back to haunt me in just about the worst way possible. The man was taller, quite good looking, 
and always wore expensive-looking clothing and accessories. He had a very elegant vibe to him, which is why I didn't feel uncomfortable when he would talk to me while I was working. He started out very polite, asking about how work was going, how my day was, stuff like that. But as the weeks went on, he would ask more and more personal questions, which began to make me just a little bit suspicious of him. The event that occurred right before I quit was a night that I wish I could forget when thinking back on my days at that sports bar. I remember it being a long night, probably because it was a sports season and our restaurant would get very busy. And as a hostess, it was stressful trying to take calls when there was shouting because the hockey team won a golden cup or whatever it is they win. That night, after I'd finished cleaning the bathrooms, I remember him being at the hostess stand waiting for me. I approached him and tried to make polite conversation, but I could tell immediately that he was acting strange. His gaze was shifty, and he didn't look as put together as he normally did. The first thing he said to me was something along the lines of, You're only 16, right? To which I confirmed. And he continued with something like, Well, when you're 18, I'll have something for you. It'll be a surprise. Just wait till you're 18 and he promptly left through the bar section of the grill. I stood there shocked for a moment before composing myself and finishing off my cleaning so that I could get the hell out of there. After I finished counting my drawer out, I went out back and unlocked the bike that I had gotten a month or so after I started working there and began my ride home. Note that I was paranoid as hell as I was doing this because seriously, who the fuck says that to an underage girl? I watched my back all night as I rode home and felt watched pretty much the entire time. It was kind of my fault he knew my age. I had told him long ago as I mentioned something about birthday plans, but his comment on my age made me feel sick to my stomach regardless. Now let's jump to more recently when I started my new job just across the parking lot. It's been years since I worked there and I had just about let go of the memories of working at that godforsaken sports bar but something happened recently that made the memories feel like yesterday. At the time, stimulus checks and nice weather had brought out a surge of customers to my current restaurant. I've worked here for almost a year now, and we have been busier in the past month than we've been since I first started. This means that occasionally, I don't get to park right by the front doors, and I end up parking a bit further away. On this particular day, that still makes me feel nervous thinking about it, I had to park basically at the farthest corner of our lot due to a large amount of staff and customers taking the closer spots. That day, I thought nothing of it as I went in for my closing shift and worked a long and stressful set of hours until about 10 p.m. I work at the front of the restaurant and our closing duties can be pretty grueling. That night was especially bad because I was the only one up front besides the manager who has to go back and forth between kitchen and front to help. I finished all of my cleaning, albeit a bit later than usual, and felt bad for taking so long, but they weren't too upset because a coworker of mine was waiting on a ride, so management had to wait for a bit anyway. So with that, I say my goodbyes for the night to the two of them and head out the back door to my car. I immediately was irritated that I had to walk so far to get to it, and I started digging in my bag for keys. I didn't realize that there was a third car in our parking lot until it was almost too late. I finally got my keys out of my bag after a moment of struggling to find them 
and realized that the third car is in fact not my manager, and it was parked right next to mine. Upon getting closer, I realized there's a person inside, so I remember thinking to myself, is that my coworker's ride? But no one came out to go home, so I assumed not. I looked back closer to the restaurant and realized that in front of the building, where I couldn't see before as I left out the back, my manager's car was sitting empty right up front. All of these thoughts were piecing together as I slowly trailed to my car. And after connecting the dots, I tried to see who was in the car waiting right next to mine. I remember squinting at them. And that's probably what made them realize that I had noticed them. And with that, they turned on their car. Immediately, I looked away because the car lights were too bright. And when I tried to look back again, the cabin light was turned on. I stopped dead in my tracks as if I were paralyzed. Now, just telling this is starting to make my eyes tear up for some reason, but the expression that this man was wearing invokes so much fear, I think my heart quite literally skipped a beat. The man's features were a bit blurry with the distance and darkness, but I could tell that he knew me from somewhere with that little overhead light illuminating his face. The lack of facial expression is what really made me scared shitless, because I figured that he would smile, frown, wave, do something. But instead, he sat there, arms at his sides, as he just waited for me to come closer. Now, as a young woman, I should know better than to ignore my instincts telling me to get the hell out of there. But for one split second, I almost felt compelled to continue towards my car. I can't explain why, but I distinctly recall taking one step forward before pausing asking myself, what the f am I doing? And then hightailing it back to the restaurant. I felt like I was prey about to be eaten, the way that I sensed his overwhelming presence just mere feet behind me. The whole time I debated going back and then running to safety, but he just sat in his seat and didn't move an inch. Or so I assume, because I didn't look back until I reached the door. I glanced back at his car for a split second as I was dashing inside, and all I remember seeing was his cabin light had been turned off, and I could only see a dark figure in the driver's seat. That menacing light no longer illuminated his face. I didn't need to see his face to know that he was still staring. I could feel his eyes boring right into me. After scaring the hell out of my coworkers by yanking open the back door as I did, I explained what had happened. They both immediately got serious and told me to wait with them while they waited for my other worker's ride. We sat for a few more minutes. They talked about how freaky that situation was and how they'd call the cops if he was still there when we went outside together. I just sat in silence. I was silent because in the few minutes after the encounter with that strange man, I knew that I recognized him from somewhere. He was the same guy who had told me to wait for him when I turned 18. It took me a while because he didn't look like he used to. He looked much more ragged, a bit older, and much, much scarier. I don't know if he saw me that day as I brought out the trash or maybe when I walked into work, but he knew that I was there somehow, and that scared the shit out of me. When their ride finally arrived, we all walked out together, and my eyes instantly shot to the area where I knew his car was parked. But it was just my car though, waiting for me to climb inside 
and get home ASAP. The manager saw my coworker off into their parents' car and then walked me to mine. She helped me check under my car and inside, as apparently she had dealt with a stalker before and knew all of the tricks to stay safe. I thanked her profusely and got in, locking my doors immediately. I watched her as she walked to her car and began to leave the lot. I looked frantically to see if I could spot his car anywhere in the shopping area that connected with our parking lot, but found nothing. I lived close by my work, so I took a long way home that night, fearing that he was waiting for me to go home, maybe to do something sinister. Needless to say, I didn't sleep well that night, as I kept thinking that he was in the darkest corner of my room with that hollow expression on his face. I considered making a police report, but seeing as the police tend to be useless in scenarios such as this, and I literally only had a first name, which could have been fake, I decided against it. The weeks after this occurrence, I hadn't seen or heard from him, but I still think about him every time I leave the building, half expecting him to be either standing outside ready to snatch me, or parked right next to my car. Now, I always leave with my coworkers as my parents insisted I begin doing after I told them about what had happened. Even now, I still wonder why he remembered that I was 18, because I had almost completely forgotten him. And now, I hope that I never do find out what surprise he had waiting for me. All in all, I definitely think I've earned the right to say this. Creepy man, whose name may or may not have been Michael, let's not meet. This is a long one, but it was so bizarre that I think it's worth telling. I wanted to post it because this person recently tried to friend my now husband on Facebook, and it brought back crazy memories, and I need to vent it out. I got married right at 18. I was a pretty book-smart kid, but lacked street smarts. By the time I turned 20, my now ex-husband and I had moved into a rental property in a pretty nice suburb outside of Chicago. In the basement of the house was a big mother-in-law suite, where a good male friend of ours, Nick, lived as well. I was about halfway through nursing school at this point in time. This particular semester of nursing school, I had a very early clinical rotation once a week. I was about 21 at this point, and I'm not a morning person, so in order to maximize the amount of time I spent asleep, I started loading all my stuff into my car the night before. Bags, books and even my purse, again, lacking street smarts. One particular night before clinicals, I asked my ex-husband Bobby to get a book for my car. Bob does, but he forgets to lock the door. The next morning when I get to my car, I note that my purse is gone. I ended up filing a police report that morning. I was most concerned because I had just gotten this new job as a nurse's aide at a hospital, and I had my social security card still sitting in my wallet. Strike three for street smarts right there. Almost immediately after the theft, strange things started to happen. We started getting ding-dong ditches at all hours of the day and night. Someone vandalized my, Nick's, and Bob's car with strange graffiti. Think swastikas, hangmen, etc. Someone egged our house, and someone slashed Nick's tires. We at first chalked it up to neighborhood pranksters, but when we started having damages that cost a decent amount of money, we called the police. 
Not to mention, one day when Bob was mowing our lawn, he noticed piles of cigarette butts outside the bedroom window. The police came out, pretty much did nothing, but they did take a report and told us to perhaps invest in car alarms and some brighter floodlights for the driveway. A few weeks after this, at nearly 2.30 in the morning, I get a call on my cell phone. It was the police from a neighboring town. They had picked up someone who had my ID on them, someone named Craig J. When they asked why he had someone else's ID on him, he claimed that I was his girlfriend. The cop called me because my name had popped that I had filed a police report for theft. I assured the cops I'd never heard of Craig J before and was told that I could pick up my ID at the police station within the next few days. Things really started to escalate at that point, but I still didn't make the connection that perhaps these incidents were related. I started getting strange messages on MySpace, this was in 2009, as well as on Facebook from clearly fake accounts with long-winded messages that made absolutely no sense. This person started messaging friends of mine as well. I deleted MySpace and blocked the person on Facebook, but new accounts kept getting created. Somehow this person got my email address and started sending emails to boot. I had no idea who this person could be, but they seemed to know details about me that indicated this was either someone I knew or knew someone I knew. The messages weren't overtly threatening, but creepy enough to where I started becoming uncomfortable. One night, my friend Lauren and I were sitting on the couch watching TV. Bob, Lauren's husband, and a few other friends had gone out for the night. As we're sitting around chilling, we hear something that sounds like someone shaking the garage door. I go and check the garage, but nothing seems out of the ordinary. We had occasional issues with raccoons, so I chalked it up to that. But the noises continued. Lauren and I are getting freaked out at this point. Now, so you understand the layout of the house, it was a modern style ranch house with no upstairs. The garage sounds moved now to the kitchen window, a distinct sound of someone knocking or scratching hard on the windows. We call our husbands who didn't happen to answer. At this point, we debate calling the police, but think what if it's an animal or tree branches? We don't wanna come off as stupid. As we debate, I see Lauren's face go sheet white as she looks past me. I can see the handle to the front door wiggling. Thank goodness it's locked. We were seated near the kitchen when we jump up. Lauren grabs a knife from the butcher block on the counter. I grab a small hammer from the junk drawer. We book it to the back of the house where the bedrooms are, cell phones in hand, and lock ourselves in one of the bedrooms to call the police. The dispatcher tells us to stay on the line move furniture in front of the door if possible, and that the police are on their way. We shove a dresser in front of the door, knife and hammer still in tow. We agreed if this f***er was going to come in, he might be bigger or stronger than us, but we're not going down without a fight. We plan, if he gets in before the cops, I go for the head with the hammer, she goes for the gut with the knife. Cops show up, banging on the front door, shouting police. We can see the red and blue lights through the window. Feeling that it's finally safe to exit, we leave the room, let the cops in, and they find no signs of anyone present or evidence of an attempted break-in. They take another report, and in the meanwhile, our husbands finally call us back. They come home, the cops leave. Flash forward a few months, a very close friend of ours, Sean, was renovating his apartment 
and needed a place to crash along with his girlfriend. Bob and I decided that he could stay in the third bedroom of our house. The first night Sean stays with us, we're awakened at two in the morning by Sean screaming at someone. Bob and I jump out of bed and rush to the hall and to Sean's room. Sean and his girl are wide awake, lights on, looking totally freaked out. The window screen is sliced and just flopping in the wind. Sean told us that he woke up to someone using what he thought was a knife on the window screen, and they began to climb through the window. We call the cops. They come out, take a statement. Sean describes the guy as best as he could. A white male, young-looking, semi-shaved head with what looked like darker hair. Cops dust for fingerprints. Comes back as a match for Craig J. Turns out, I knew who he was vaguely. He was a year younger than me, and we had gone to the same high school, but I couldn't remember having any significant interactions with him. He lived with his parents only a few blocks from my parents' house. I ended up reaching out to high school acquaintances who knew him, and they remembered him as a nice, but odd kid, kind of quiet, but definitely on the strange side, who had dropped out of school before graduation. Upon realizing that Sean had just moved in, the cop makes a statement that chilled us all. He probably didn't realize anyone was staying in this bedroom and thought the room would be empty. Cops head to Craig's parents' house, arrest him on sight. He suddenly has quite the story for them. He and I were secret lovers. I was ignoring him. We had a relationship. He also had been allowed into my home many times. I'm absolutely floored by this. He gets charged with something like trespassing or breaking and entering and does light time for it, maybe a month, and has to pay a fine. In the meanwhile, I get a restraining order on him. He gets out. I hear nothing from him. I also develop a completely irrational fear of first floor windows. Around Christmas of 2010, I'm now 23. I figure the whole Craig thing is in the past. Bob and I decide a divorce unrelated to this, and we go our separate ways. And Nick has long since moved out. We end the lease at the house. I move to a less desirable suburb, but with affordable rent. I settle on an apartment in a four-unit building that had a locked entrance, and the only way in was with a key or with someone opening the door from the inside. I lived on the second floor. By this time, I had graduated and was now a full-fledged nurse and was working at a nursing home. Spring or summer of 2011, and it all started up again. Calls coming through to me at work, only to have someone hang up. Letters suddenly appeared in the staff-only mailbox, mailed to me with no return address. The strange email started up again from random accounts. The messages, once again, were never overtly threatening, but they were long, way too frequent, way too out there. He spoke to me as if we were long-lost friends and had some sort of connection. I don't think he ever threatened to hurt me, although the cutting into the house with a knife... I don't know what was going through his mind. What I kind of seemed to piece together over the years from all his rambling is that he had some sort of crush on me when we were younger, although I never even remember speaking to him during high school, and him happening to rob my car was some sort of sign from the universe, or something, that we were meant to be together. I call the cops. They basically tell me that because there have been no threats, and other than a new order of protection or a cease and desist, there's not much they can do except watch and wait. 
This goes on for a while, and finally, one night I wake up at 2 in the morning to the doorbell ringing. I'm instantly in a panic. I look out the window, and there, illuminated in the floodlight, is Craig. I instantly burst out crying. In my half-awake state, I run across the hall and start banging on my neighbor's door. He's an older divorced guy who happens to live alone. He goes downstairs on my behalf, confronts Craig, and tells him the cops have been called. At this point, Craig takes off. I file another report, and they claim that they'll talk to him, but this only makes things worse. Friends I have on Facebook now start getting random messages from Craig, asking about me, telling them he has important information for me. Other times, he alternates and says that I owe him money, and I have a debt that I need to pay off. My friends block him as he goes along. Meanwhile, my younger sister is living in the city with a few friends. He somehow finds out where, and drives to her apartment and confronts her while she has people over. She rightfully freaks out. They kick him out. She calls the cops, who basically again state that he didn't commit a crime, but they do offer her a restraining order. Right after this, another incident. My younger cousin is a high school senior on the cross-country team. He shows up at my cousin's practice. Cousin has no clue who he is. He starts demanding information on me. Coach gets involved. Craig gets in a fight with the coach. Cops are called once more. He's banned from school grounds, but nothing more comes of it. He calls the nursing home administrator at my job, asking to talk to me, and that he has important information to tell me. The administrator, my work was now aware of the situation, tells him not to come onto the property or he will have him arrested for trespassing. I'm paranoid beyond all measure now. And then, just as quickly as it all started, it faded off. It's now summer of 2012 and the final capper in this saga. I'm 25 now. A friend of mine named Stacy, and incidentally Sean's ex, moved in with me temporarily while she looked for a place. She was dating a new guy and spent quite a few nights at his place. Well, one day, I picked up a double shift, starting at 7am and ending at 11.30pm. Stacy texted me around 3.30pm, stating she won't be home that night and was going out with her guy. I arrive home at nearly midnight. First thing I notice is that my door is unlocked. Uneasy, but thinking that perhaps Stacy had just forgotten to lock it, I cautiously peer inside. I pan my gaze to the kitchen and the living room, and I can't shake the feeling that something is just amiss. Something wasn't sitting right, and due to all of these incidents, I always make sure that one or two lights were left on, even when no one was home. I was still not even fully in the door when I noticed that I was staring into a pitch black apartment, and immediately, my brain went into full panic. And I'm really glad that it did. Realistically, Stacy could have forgotten to leave a light on, but my instincts were in overdrive and sounding off five alarm fire bells right in my ear. One of my neighbors close to me was known for his weekend parties, and I could hear a party going on downstairs. I book it down there and bust into the party and tell him what happened. He looks at me like I'm crazy, but agrees to come upstairs with me. We get inside, he looks around, we see nobody. I'm starting to wonder if I'm just nuts. Maybe Stacy had her boyfriend over and they left in a hurry. 
forgetting to turn on the low lights and lock the doors. He agrees with me and sort of jokingly pulls open the pantry door. But what I saw next will never, ever leave my mind. There, crouched inside, is Craig. My neighbor yanks him clean out of the cupboard, puts the guy in a chokehold, and I call the police. To this day, I have no idea what he planned on doing. Cops come out, and he's arrested. Because my neighbor was having a party, he had the door open to the hallway. Chances are, Craig just walked into the building, and if anyone even noticed, people would just assume that he was there for the party or whatever. It's more confusing how he got into my apartment itself. The theory is, my roommate at the time was from the country, and while I lived in a suburb, it was the type of suburb right on the edge of a major US city. So we always locked our doors and generally kept everything secured as a rule. She was used to leaving her doors unlocked and wide open. And I think honestly, it may have just slipped her mind when she went out the door for the night. I confronted her about it and she of course denied it, but that's really the only logical way he could have gotten in. I always locked both set of locks on the door whenever I left the house. And unless he was a skilled locksmith, I have no idea how he could have gotten in. I didn't stay alone or go anywhere by myself for a long time after that. I feel that I actually developed a paranoia because of all this and was highly suspicious of giving my number or any information out to anyone. He ended up being charged and convicted of aggravated stalking, breaking and entering, and some other charges. I did meet his parents in court, who were both, shockingly, very normal, apologetic people. They tried explaining their son. They claimed he was mentally ill and suffered from bipolar disorder. When he's medicated, he's okay. When he's off his meds, he's nuts. After he served time, I didn't hear from him for years, until 2016 when he found me on Facebook. I was much older now, around 29. I replied to him very firmly that any contact would end in the police being called and that I had no interest in him at all. I blocked him in any way I could. Recently, he found my new husband on Facebook and friended him, but my husband blocked him as well. To this day, I still have that paranoia. I had parked my car near a baseball diamond once, and some kids most likely hit a baseball into my windshield and took off, because I had a perfectly baseball-sized spider crack on the glass. Despite it being completely logical that it most likely was a ball, I instantly reverted to, oh god, is he back? I have no idea what happened to him. I also am now a total psycho about keeping things locked. Twice my life got screwed up because doors weren't locked. My car door, and most likely my apartment. I have an acquaintance monitor him on Facebook. His page is not private. And from what I have seen, he appears to go through periods where he's pretty inactive, and then episodes where he is rambling, overposting, oversharing, and acting generally deranged. I believe his parents were telling the truth when they stated that when he's medicated, he's cool. Part of me feels bad for him. I'm older now, I've been a nurse for almost a decade, some of which time was spent in a psych specialty. The mind is a hell of a thing. Looking back though, those were some of the worst years of my adult life. He put me through a lot of anxiety and caused a lot of issues for me. I slept with my couch pushed against my apartment door for the next two years before I moved out of there. I'm now married, but on nights where I'm home alone, I still find myself resisting the urge to stack furniture in front of the doors. 
One of the other fallouts from this situation, Craig either sold, lost, or gave away my social security card that had been in my purse. Someone tried to file for Medicaid benefits in Arizona using my name and social, as well as obtained a job using my social and failed to pay any taxes, leaving me with a surprise asset freeze by the IRS and a whole financial mess that needed to be untangled before they unfroze my accounts and paid me back the money they started to pull out of my paychecks for the back taxes that I had nothing to do with. My credit got extremely messed up for years because of this, and to this day, I have a lock on my social security number and monitor my accounts like a hawk. I guess the moral of my long-winded and twisted story is to always lock your doors and to never leave your purse in the car. I grew up with my dad and my brother. My mom died when I was 10, and I was 14 at the point of this story, and my brother was 16 and out with friends. I used to go out until late in the evening, drinking at a park with friends of mine. My dad was an alcoholic and always too drunk to know if I was home or not. I had free reign, no rules or boundaries. Kind of a teenager's dream, but also something now that I can see that isn't conducive for a healthy upbringing. My dad used to invite random alcoholic drug-using strangers into our house. Oftentimes, when I would come home, these strangers and my dad would be passed out asleep from too much alcohol or the drug of their choice, or they would barely notice that I was there, and I'd head straight to my room. One night, I'd come back from hanging out with friends. It was the early hours of the morning. I walked through the living room to go upstairs to my room, and noticed that my dad was asleep on his living room armchair. The guy that he'd brought back with him that night was probably in his mid-fifties. I didn't recognize him, so safe to say he hadn't been in our house before. He looked at me as I walked across the room, and the moment I felt his gaze, I knew that something was off about him. He smiled and stared, tried to start a conversation with me, but I was keen to get to my bedroom. I went upstairs, hopped into pajamas for bed, and then dashed out to use the bathroom. As I was walking to the bathroom, I hear him from the edge of the hallway say, You look nice in those pajamas. I looked up, and in the dimly lit hallway, I could see him smiling at me. A very creepy, toothy smile. I went back to my room instead of using the bathroom, and I shut and locked the door behind me. Within moments of clicking that lock, he was trying to open my bedroom door. I became scared because I knew that something was off and that he had most likely some bad intentions in mind. I dragged my bed across the room to block the door even further in case he broke the lock and forced the door open. He's knocking on the door, nay, banging on the door. I'm just trying to say hello. Don't be so rude. Open the door. I'm not responding. I'm quietly panicking. While I know I'm not a genius by any stretch, I did feel like I was a bright 14-year-old, and I knew that I was in danger. The bed is blocking the door, and the door is still locked, but I can hear him pushing against the door, using his entire weight, trying to get inside. I open my bedroom window, and I scream out, again and again, help, help, please, at the top of my lungs. What I later found out was that my neighbor heard me and knowing my dad was an alcoholic, assumed that something had happened to him. He came around the front of the house, must have seen that my dad was asleep, comes right up to my room, 
and he begins knocking to get in. I can hear his familiar voice, a voice of safety. And although I trusted my neighbor, I'm so shaken up that I now just sat in the corner of my room, in a ball, crying, shaking and panicked. Unlike my pursuer, my neighbor was able to knock the door open, pushing it open against the weight of my bed. He came in, checked on me, assuming that I must have been hurt. He attempted to console me as I tried to compose myself and tell him what had just happened. He sat on the floor with me and called the police for assistance. As if the pursuer knew what was coming, he had fled our house out the back door before my neighbor made his way in. The police weren't able to locate that man, and that only fueled my fear that he could come back at any point. After speaking to my father, who was barely able to form sentences, and myself, the police realized that this wasn't a safe situation for me to be in, and by the end of the night, they had phoned social services. That was the night that I ended up in the care system. I'm 17 now, and after a few years of bouncing from home to home, I now live with my auntie, who has done all that she possibly can to care for me and keep me safe. I know that there are young girls such as myself that have situations like the one that I just shared and are not lucky enough to free themselves from it. For that, I know that I'm truly blessed and my heart goes out to all those other girls. I was a teenager in the mid-90s, and a bit of a wild one at that. On this particular evening, I had found myself stuck downtown. It was around midnight when I finally found a semi-well-lit bus stop. I looked at the bus schedule and realized to my dismay that I may have missed the last bus of the night. That is, unless it happened to be running late. I decided to wait on the bench and pray that that was the case. I remember being dressed in my punk rock attire as that was how I felt most comfortable at the time. Tank top, fishnet arm coverings, tall black boots, and a skirt that was probably a bit too short for a 16-year-old to be rocking, but whatever. Moments after settling into the bench, a tall man walked up and sat right next to me. There was plenty of space to sit elsewhere for him, but he huddled up nice and close. He was wearing all black, including a black leather jacket. He started making smooth conversation with me, and that's when I finally looked directly at him. He was very tan, had shiny, wavy black hair, and nearly orange eyes. Like a bright hazel orange, snake-looking eyes, which contrasted with his dark features and clothes. He had a really unsettling vibe about him, and he seemed like something sinister incarnate. He took off his leather jacket and laid it across my lap to, quote, keep me warm. I took it off and handed it right back to him, saying no thanks. But he kept draping it back over my lap. I looked around for other people and only saw a passed out homeless person sleeping on a bench off in the distance. This man was trying to coerce me into getting a ride with him because it's so late and he was worried about me and that my bus wasn't coming and I'm not safe to just sit here. I said, no thanks. My bus should be here any minute. In my mind, I didn't know if that bus would get here at all. But the streets were dead and dark, and I was terrified to leave the only spot that was well lit. After what seemed like an eternity, my bus finally pulled up. It was the most beautiful bus that I had ever seen. 
I quickly got up and said, My bus is here. Have a good night. He sneered at the bus, and as he turned around, I could hear him say under his breath, You got lucky. I got on the bus and peered out the window to see him walking to his car in a dark parking lot across the street from where we were. He stood next to his car, waving for me to get off the bus and to come to him, as if that would change my mind. It did not. Like I said, I was a wild teen that partied a lot and would stay downtown at all hours of the night, and I thought that I was invincible. But after that night, I can honestly say that I never stayed out that late again, especially alone. I really did get lucky and had no intention of pushing those bounds again. This is going to take a while to explain everything, so stay with me. I promise that it all comes around. My very first car was a dark green 2000 Volkswagen Jetta. It was the most basic of basics when it came to cars. No options whatsoever, except for an automatic transmission. It cost me $300, it was slow, dumpy, no right headlight, drove straight with the steering wheel practically sideways and it let out a cloud of white smoke whenever it started. Every stereotype of a poor high schooler's car you can think of, my car was no exception. Despite it being a piece of German crap, I loved that car. I drove it every chance I had. I don't think a day went by that I didn't drive it. I named it Thunder Bunny. She was my baby. My beautiful green baby. But Volkswagens from that generation, Jettas especially, had a pretty bad flaw in the automatic transmission. I'm not sure exactly what causes it, but essentially the transmissions gradually get worse and worse until the car won't shift into third gear, and there's not a thing you can do from there. So a couple of weeks after Halloween in 2019, I was going about 30 miles per hour when the engine suddenly roared and the car wouldn't speed up. I feared the worse, and my fears were justified. My dad, a mechanic, didn't even have hope for my baby. She was already gone. And so, much to my dismay, we began looking for a new car. It only took us about a month to find it. A dark green 1999 Volkswagen Jetta. Exactly like my old car. Except for just about everything. It was faster, had heated leather seats, automatic windows, a sunroof, everything. All except for an automatic transmission. I knew how to drive manual, so it was perfect for me. I had a new baby, moving up from the crackhead neighbor girl to Scarlett Johansson, at least in my eyes. I loved that car even harder, named it Little Boy, and I was happy. Okay, I'm about to get to the story, but I have a few more quick things to explain. You can skip this if you want. It's important, but not vital to the story. First is for people that might not know, but when you have a manual car, you cannot leave it in gear and take your foot off the clutch. If you do, the car will stall, which is not ideal. So if you do leave your car in gear, you need to turn the engine off before taking your foot off the clutch. If you don't want to turn the car off or have it turn itself off, you need to pull the handbrake or it'll roll away. Guess what the only real broken thing on my car was at the point that this story takes place? If you guess the handbrake, you're right. Okay, so now to the story. 
I started working as a pizza delivery driver in a smaller, growing town in Michigan. It was good money, but every once in a while, I delivered to an incredibly sketchy place, even had a few shotguns pulled on me. One night, I was delivering on a Friday. Usually, Fridays are very busy, but this day was a little bit slow. So when a delivery came in at 8.30pm, half an hour before we closed, I jumped on it. I realized it was 7.1 miles away, so all of the closing jobs would be done by the time I got back, and I'd be able to leave for home immediately after returning to the store. The delivery was way out of town, in a wood-surrounded neighborhood, but again, no work when I got back to the store. Seemed like a good deal to me, and I'm all about those sort of deals in life. So I climbed into my car, went to drive the 7.1 miles away. As I pulled up to the house, I began to get a bad feeling. The house was in a small trailer park type neighborhood next to a lake, the kind that the houses are all a good distance apart, and the occupants all likely had a drug problem. The house itself was completely dark. No lights inside, none outside. There was a single car in the driveway and an open window on the side of the house. I pulled in behind the car in the driveway and sat there for a moment. I had this clawing feeling that something was off. By the house being completely dark, I mean, there wasn't so much as a nightlight that I could see. Usually when I deliver to a dark house, there's at least one light on upstairs or something that would signal someone being awake, waiting for their pizza. But the house, it seemed dead. Nevertheless, I put the car in gear, turned off the engine, grabbed the small, cheapest pizza we had, and got out. Without my headlights on, there was nothing. I could barely see the house. The only light was the dim moon above. I walked onto the porch, past the big open window to the front door. As I reached the front door, that's when I saw it. The door was slightly cracked open, just enough for me to see into the void of the house. Thinking of every single horror movie I'd ever seen, I said aloud, that, and hurried back to my car. Now, I'm a tall, well-built looking guy, but despite my wide shoulders and baggy hoodie, I'm a frail thing and can hardly fight off a small dog. I got into my car and turned on the engine. My headlights illuminated the house, and almost simultaneously, the living room light behind the big open window lit up and a single man looked out and walked to the front door. I cussed at myself and weighed my options. If I went up to the door, I could die. If I noped out of there, I would be 110% fired. That meant no new car part, no gas money, no cute dates with my girl, just sitting at home doing virtual schoolwork. It was a stupid choice, I know, but I grabbed the pizza and opened my door. Making a choice that I'm damn glad that I made. I took the car out of gear and climbed out. Mostly so my engine would still be running so that if I needed, I could run back and immediately take off. I walked to the door where the man had opened it the rest of the way. As I got closer, I got a good look at him. Now, I'm not one to judge a person based on their physical appearance, but this guy's head was cleanly shaven and he was covered in tattoos. He was wearing a pair of gray jeans and a white tank top, had a scowl on his face, and was staring me dead in the eyes. 
I looked past him for a moment into the house, which was completely empty. As I got close enough that I started opening the pizza bag, he started to reach around his waist. I stopped. That's when I noticed the most evil grin I'd ever seen across a human's face. I knew in that moment that I was about to die. I'd always heard your life seems to flash before your eyes. I thought about my girl, that she wouldn't know what happened. My work would stop delivering upon my disappearance, assuming that my body would never be found. My dad would regret telling me he was happy for me landing this job. That's when I heard it, that distinct sound of gravel under tires. My only pathetically small chance of escape was now rolling away. I didn't even have to look back at the car to know that. I just stared at the man and was about to say fuck you when he looked back to my car. I heard the sound of that car rolling. It was getting closer. The guy's eyes went from the driveway to behind me. I finally looked over my shoulder. My car had rolled backwards and had come to a smooth stop near the mailbox of the house. I looked back at the guy who had a nervous look on his face now. He looked back at me, scowled once more, and took his hand from around his waist. He reached into his front pocket, took out $12, and handed it to me. I gave him the pizza and watched him slam the door shut. I ran back to my car and practically tore the door off trying to get in. I looked back at the house, and that man was standing in front of the window, staring right out at me. You better believe I nearly spun the tires on my way out of there. I kept glancing at my mirrors until I started driving under streetlights. It was easily the scariest moment I'd ever had. I couldn't put this together until later, but I do think that this guy had malicious intent in mind. The way he looked at me, the body language, and that god-awful sneer. I think I was faced with real danger that night, until my car started rolling away. The best that I can figure is that this creep thought that I may have had someone else in the car with me, and that whatever horrible thing he was going to do, he would have to do it twice. And maybe, he just wasn't prepared to do so. As soon as I got back to the store, I told my boss about it, and she called the police. We never did hear anything about it. I assume they went to the house, and only found a small cheese pizza. I started carrying a knife on me at all times, and my boss is considering getting trackers for our pizza bags. Only recently, I realized this is a sort of butterfly effect. I thought it was the worst thing ever that my transmission went out, and I cursed Volkswagen for designing such a terrible automatic transmission. But if that transmission was still working, then I would have still had that car when this happened. I would have put the car in park, and it would have sat there, while whatever would have happened to me, happened. I have absolutely zero doubts in my mind that that man was planning on murdering me. So, shitty German engineering saved me from getting murdered that night. I'm going to preface this by saying that this is 100% true. As much as I'd like to be a writer, I am not one. I've scrolled through this sub a hundred times thinking to myself, has anything happened to me that I could post? Like I'm sure we all have. It wasn't until last week that I started thinking about posting my dad's story here. Now, if this is not the right forum, I'd like to know because my father is the best person that I know and I want to share his story one way 
or another. Spring 2014. It's the slow season for my father's business. The weather is nice and roads are clear, which means slow shifts at an auto shop. It was mid-April, around 4pm. The wind was pulling in a nice spring breeze when my dad, Bill, was walking along the side of his shop. It happened to overlook a small stream and running trail, which he enjoyed gazing at near the end of his shift. The side of his building ran along the top of a steep hill, which turned into the path. He heard a rustling in the wind, and about halfway down the hill, he sees a big blue tarp. Being very proud of his business and its appearance, he started to climb down the hill. He was just about to grab for it, maybe 15 feet away, to toss it in the dump, when he saw a car pull into the lot. He turned around and went to help his customer. As 5.30pm rolls around, he closes up shop and heads home, forgetting all about the tarp. The next afternoon, Bill is sitting in his office when three policemen came in. They asked my father and co-workers a bunch of questions about any suspicious behavior they might have seen. Side note, my dad is extremely charismatic and friendly. He oftentimes talks people into sharing information with him that they really shouldn't. He looks like someone you can trust, and he seemed to always have the insider details about things like this. He used his humor to make people feel comfortable, which helped getting strangers to open up to him. Anyway, so Bill and his co-worker Hank are talking with a female police officer when she lets it slip that a body had been discovered just down the hill from the shop. Oh shit, I was just down there yesterday cleaning. I didn't see any body though, Bill said. Around what time? Did you happen to see a large blue and white tarp while you were cleaning the area? The officer asked intensely. Um, actually, yeah. I almost grabbed it yesterday, but I ended up getting distracted. She asked him more questions about what time, what he saw, etc. When he asked her if the body was found in the tarp. Why, yes, it was. A woman jogging found it this morning around 10.30am. My dad was floored. He was just there yesterday. After a few more questions, the police all head to the crime scene to finish the initial investigation. No one was allowed on the scene, and the police were asking that passerbys not take any pictures. Flash forward a few days. The police went back to my father's shop. They noticed the security camera set up around the building, and they were hoping that they might have caught something on tape. While transferring the data, my dad started asking more questions about the murder. He learned that it was a middle-aged man, that he'd been stabbed to death. Not too much to go on as it seemed. Hey, you know there are a couple of meth heads that live in this shack behind our shop. It's connected to that bar? Bill started talking about his own predictions for whodunit scenarios. He continued, Yeah, we have a lot of problems with them. Stealing scrap metal from the back, letting their dogs run wild. Even had him threaten to shoot me once when I was spraying their dogs with water to stop the barking. You should check them out. The officer nodded, gathered the rest of his things, and left. Hey Hank, let's go down there. See if we can find anything cool, my father whispered to his co-worker. Um, alright. I guess it couldn't do any harm, Hank replied hesitantly. They started down the hill where the trench was found. The grass was flat, and the tarp was now gone. They walked around for 15 minutes or so, when Bill headed up the stream just a little ways. The trail runs under a main road, and then leads to a man-made lake. Just under the bridge 
The water starts to get heavier, and the trees are a bit thicker. He noticed a red Lowe's cart in front of one of the trees. I'm taking that for the shop, he thought as he ran over to pull it out from the stream. Calling over to Hank for help, the two of them pull it out and start wheeling it back up the hill. When suddenly, my dad stops. He sees something on the cart. What is that rusty-looking stuff? Hank, stop. Look at that f***ing cart. Is that blood? They look closer. And sure enough, blood. It was all over the cart. On the handle, the wheels, the side. But it wasn't only blood they started to notice. It looked like there was hair stuck between notches on the cart. Utterly stunned, my dad calls the policewoman he had been talking to the previous days and explained what they had found. For whatever reason, the PD were very skeptical that this was evidence. At first, they didn't even want to believe my father. When he told them that it made no sense to make up, they finally sent out a car. There were two police officers and a CSI. The CSI asked my dad why he thought this was blood. Well, it looks like blood, sir. I'm not sure. How do you know that that is human hair? The CSI asked. Because it looks like human hair. My dad snapped sarcastically. Why did the text seem so hesitant? They used a chemical test, and sure enough, it tested positive for blood. They took the card as evidence, and ultimately thanked my dad. Again, my dad tried to give his opinion on who the mystery killer might be. He suggested again that they talk with the crazy neighbors behind his auto shop. Still no information was taken down, and the police left with what they had. Two more days pass. My dad is leaving the shop to get some things from Costco. There's a small dirt alley that leads to the main road, just behind his work. In the past, it had been blocked by one of the meth addict's cars. They were complaining to my dad and his boss about the business driving cars back and forth through the alley, disrupting them. He notices it's open, and decides to take the shortcut to his destination. But something was off. He saw the usual blocked car sitting in front of the shack. The door was wide open, and there was someone sitting on their knees with their upper body inside the car. My dad got in his car and crept up, just a little, so that he could see what was happening. He right away recognized the skinny red-headed woman as the female that lived in the shack. It was the shack guy's wife or girlfriend my dad didn't exactly know. She was on her hands and knees, surrounded with hard chemicals, bleach, comet, oxyclean, and much more. My dad had said that he knew right then that they were guilty. For one, why would someone be scrubbing their car with straight chemicals? No water, no rinsing. Second, they happened to be only two blocks away from a local car wash. He said that it felt off, and he knew to trust his instincts. She just kept scrubbing and scrubbing the passenger side floor. He pulled out his phone and began recording her. Now, he's known this woman and her significant other for a few years now. Like I said, they complained about my father's workers and he complained about their dogs on and off for a while. It was all harmless bickering. My dad, always trying to be the funny guy, yells out his window as he's driving past. Covering up a murder? He laughed and drove off, hearing her say, F you, as he drove by. This time, when he called the police, they took it very seriously. He explained that she was cleaning the car aggressively, and that it seemed like she was trying to bleach something out of the car. The next day, 
P.D. went by to talk with the residents of the shack. The day after that, they made an arrest. After searching the shack, they found a large blood stain soaked into the plywood floor. Once the blood was seen, the wife, girlfriend, whoever she was, crumbled and told the police everything. It was her, her husband, and the victim. The victim was named Rich. He had gone over to their little house to shoot up and get high. Someone ended up accusing Rich of putting some of the dope aside for himself, and that's when things got heated. Eventually, the husband started to physically fight with Rich. Then he stabbed him. Rich bled out on the floor and died right there in the shack. The junkies didn't know what to do, so they stole the Lowe's cart to move him around, loaded him into the car, and wrapped him in the tarp before pushing his body down the hill. They ditched the cart, thinking the river would wash it down far enough that it wouldn't be found. My dad and Hank sat in their car while they watched the police arrest Don, the suspected murderer. The following days and weeks, we see this story on the news, highlighting the murder, Don's arrest, his trial, and ultimately, his sentencing. To this day, my dad is still very proud of being the linchpin to solving this case. He's joked more than once about wanting to start up his own PI business because he solved this case all on his own. Great job, Dad. I'm proud of you too. This happened to me a few years ago when I lived in my old one-person flat. I had been having the strangest feeling that something wasn't right for a few nights. Like, I was sure that the food in the fridge was less than what I had put back the last time. I found pillows from my couch on the floor, things that I couldn't explain. I lived alone back then, so there wasn't anyone else with access to my flat. Or so I thought. Well, one night, I woke up around one in the morning, sweating, and even though I didn't remember, I was sure I woke up from a nightmare. Since I was drenched in sweat, I decided to take a shower. So I put my phone up in the bathroom for music, turned on the water, and proceeded to enjoy my shower. After a few eventless minutes, I heard the bathroom door move. I never close it, but it never moved in the past. I took a look at the shower curtain and saw the faintest shadow against it. A subtle look at my phone confirmed that someone was there since I could clearly see a reflection in the screen that showed someone standing right next to the shower curtain. It took me a lot not to scream and to act as if I didn't notice a thing while silently taking the shower head off the holding and turning the water all the way to hot. I'm still kind of impressed with that quick thinking. Our water got really hot when you cranked it all the way up and a few seconds later, steam was rising and the water hurt my feet flowing towards the drain. I turned around, ripped the shower curtain open, and held the shower head right at the person behind it. It was a woman. She screamed in pain, and I whacked her in the face with the shower head and jumped out of the shower running to the door in one fell swoop. As I made it to the door, I removed the key from the lock, which locked the door, and closed it behind me. A little while later, after this woman had regained her composure, she began to bang on the door, but... The door didn't give. Thank God for German quality work. I phoned the police and went to the kitchen to get my big kitchen knife 
just for safety. I felt like my throat was closing up when I looked at the kitchen block and saw that knife was missing, realizing only then that there was only one possible place that it could be, with that woman. The police came and arrested the woman without incident. Turns out, she had been a former resident living in the flat, and she had been evicted after not paying rent. Seems that she had made a copy of the key and came into the flat when I was at work and sometimes while I slept at night. It's possible that what woke me up in the first place was her. And honestly, I don't even want to think about it. Ever since then, I always insist that the locks are changed when I move into a new place. It seems like a foregone conclusion that this should be done anyway, but you'd be surprised as to just how often that practice is ignored. Against the advice of my parents, I started working at a bikini coffee stand when I was freshly 18 years old and continued working there until I was 20. If you're unfamiliar with bikini coffee stands, they're little drive-through espresso stands, usually painted in some neon color, where the employees all wear lingerie or bikinis while they serve coffee. I know this sounds strange, and believe me, it is. However, the money was good. It was fun at the time, and my parents really couldn't afford to pay for my college. There's no loudspeaker where customers place their order. They simply drive up to the stand, order their drink, and make small talk as they ogle you and your skimpy ensemble. Anyway, it's kind of hard to explain, so maybe just Google it. The Seattle area has them all over the place. Within a matter of months, the boss gave me the busiest shift, the shift that began at 4 a.m. and ended at 9.30 a.m. While the coffee stand wasn't officially open until 4.30, I had to count the till, grind the espresso beans, fill up the sinks, take stock, clean if needed, etc. The coffee stand was situated in the corner of a large parking lot, sharing the enormous empty lot with only one other retailer. The other retailer didn't open until around 10 a.m., and so when I arrived, the lot was completely dark, save for one dim street lamp above the stand, and another in the far-off corner of the lot. I pulled up to the stand as I normally did, only this time it was my first shift alone. Normally, I would work with one other girl, as the shift would get far too busy for just one person to handle. I had a routine with regular customers, as I literally worked every single day. The boss didn't believe in time off, unless requested. While I worked, I could see cars approach the stand and know immediately what drink to prepare, based on my recognition of a regular customer's vehicle. After almost a year on the morning shift, it was rare to see a new vehicle or meet a new customer. My boss was extremely strict about being fast and efficient and would have us prepare drinks in advance for our regulars while they waited in the line of cars. My boss was so strict that for the first six months of my working there, he would watch constantly on his camera system and call me on the business phone to scream at me for lack of efficiency. After this, I became so fast at preparing drinks that I guess he decided that he would save money by having me work all alone in the very early morning hours. So, like normal, I approached the stand and punched in the access code. I went inside and turned on some music right away to keep myself company. 
The street lamp directly above the coffee stand had burnt out a few days before, so it was rather dark outside. Coupled with the tinted sliding windows of the coffee stand, and the knowledge that I was completely alone, I did feel a little creeped out, although not as terrified as I was about to feel in a few minutes. Even though the stand was technically open at 4.30, I wouldn't expect my first customer until about 4.45. I usually arrived at 4, but since it was my first shift alone, I got there a little early, 3.30, to give myself enough time to complete all of the opening tasks. My first customer was always Dave. He drove a red sports car and ordered a double cappuccino, heavy on the foam. He worked for the local Boeing plant and would brag about his high-ranking job in between awkward remarks about my body. You get used to this sort of thing after a while, but nothing could prepare me for the sort of thing that happened to me on this particular dark morning. Though many of our customers were pervy men like Dave, most of the early morning customers weren't as lecherous as one would expect. They simply needed coffee, and no other business was open as early as ours. In fact, many of my early morning customers were married women in soccer mom vans in desperate need of caffeine. I glanced up at the clock as I counted the money. It was 3.50 a.m. I finished the count and walked from the back of the stand onto the main floor. There were two steps separating the back of the stand from the main floor. The back of the stand had no windows and contained a bathroom, large refrigerator, washer, dryer, etc. This is the area where my coworkers and myself would get ready and joke around where customers couldn't see us. As soon as we walked onto the main floor, where customers could see us, uniform was required, meaning lingerie or bikini, as well as heels. That morning, I was wearing a matching pink lingerie set with knit stockings. The lingerie fully covered my breast and butt, and provided more coverage than a typical bikini you would see at the beach. I counted all of the syrup bottles, opened the fridge, and took stock inside. I turned on the espresso grinder, and robotically poured in a bag of espresso beans. I started filling up the large commercial sink with soapy water. Music played softly on the stereo. Then I heard it. Over the noise of the faucet, coffee grinder, and the music, I wasn't sure I had heard anything at first, so I ignored it. But then it happened again. Tap, tap, tap. Someone was tapping on the sliding glass window of the stand. I wiped off my wet hands and grabbed my cell phone. 4.15 a.m. We weren't open for another 15 minutes. I checked the light switches to make sure that I didn't accidentally flip on the open sign. Along with an open sign, the stand was equipped with bright floodlights to illuminate the presence of the stand. Due to the sheer darkness that morning, I had contemplated turning on the floodlights when I first arrived, but it was strictly forbidden to do so until the stand was open. Without the floodlights on and through the tinted glass, I couldn't see who was on the other side. I stood there, staring at the window. Maybe it's just Dave, I rationalized to myself. Tap. 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 I could hear my heart thumping in my ears. The tapping had definitely grown louder. I picked up the business phone and punched in my boss's number. He had an extensive camera system, complete with night vision, and could see in real time both inside and outside of the stand. At the very least, he could tell me who was outside. The phone rang and rang, but no answer. I finally flipped on the floodlights, walked over to the window, and saw the man now illuminated by bright light. 
His head was pressed up against the glass, hands cupped around his eyes as he tried to see in. This made me jump back. Hey, he yelled through the glass. Can I get some coffee? Uh, we aren't open for another 15 minutes, I replied. My boss will be mad if I open early. Oh well, I guess I can wait. The man then walked away from the window and stepped into a small black Honda. I continued my opening duties, carefully eyeing that black Honda. At the time, I felt a false sense of security, lulled into the daily routine of my shift. However, this was different. At 4.30, I dutifully turned on the open sign and watched as the man in the black Honda drove up to the window. He was wearing a dark red baseball cap, a thermal shirt, and plaid pajama pants. I opened the sliding window. Hey, sorry about that. What can I get for you this morning? I said, trying to sound as normal as possible. The man looked at me for what felt like an eternity. What I want doesn't appear to be on the menu, he said, not looking up from my crotch. Okay, so I know what you're thinking. What did I expect working in this profession? Gentlemen? I brushed his comment aside with a laugh. We have a great white chocolate mocha. I looked around frantically. Where the f*** was the usual morning guy, Dave? I silently prayed another customer would pull up behind this guy. He looked away, stared at a steering wheel. I want you to be my maid. Excuse me? I said, not sure if I had heard him correctly. I want you to be my maid. I want you to come over to my house, wearing a maid costume with nothing underneath. I want to watch you. And if you don't clean correctly, I'm going to do whatever I want to you. He paused and gripped his steering wheel tightly. I'm not a nice guy. That's when he looked up at me and smiled. Until that point in my life, I had never seen a truly sinister smile before. I slammed the serving window shut, ran to the back of the stand, hyperventilating at this point, and picked up the phone and called my boss repeatedly with no answer. I stood on the steps and peered out the window. The black Honda was gone, replaced by the familiar red of Dave's sports car. I never thought I would be happy to see pervy Dave, but here I was, rushing to the serving window to tell him what had just happened. I opened the window, all the while frantically relaying the story. Dave just laughed and muttered something about the guy dreaming. He told me that I was being paranoid, and the guy just had no filter. And for some reason, this put me at ease. Dave reached his hand out the window to place a $5 bill in my tip jar. He tipped this amount each morning. Wow, he exclaimed. You just opened and your tip jar is already full. I know you make good coffee, but it's not that great. Huh? I said, slamming the register shut. The tip jar rested on the outside window ledge so customers could reach it. I made it a habit of just leaving it outside in between customers as it could get very busy. I leaned over and looked into the metal canister. Inside the tip jar was a long white envelope that appeared to be stuffed to its capacity. My stomach turned as I knew it had to be from the guy in the black Honda. Dave, I said cautiously, it's from the guy I just told you about. I'm not opening that. Dave sipped his cappuccino and suddenly his goofy demeanor turned serious. You're right. Let me open it. I have gloves. It was late fall and rather cold this morning. Dave put on his gloves in a dramatic manner, laughing about my paranoia, and proceeded to step outside of his car. He took the envelope from the tip jar before opening it. 
Holy shit, he said, his eyes widening. He held up a stack of $20 bills held together by a rubber band. On the back of the stack was a folded up piece of paper. He unfolded the paper and began reading it. His eyes grew even wider, his hands shaking ever so slightly. What? What does it say? He simply said, Get dressed and call the police. I snatched the note from him, his jaw slightly agape. The note was laden with spelling errors and looked as if it was written in a child's hand. Oddly, there were rather long words that were attempted but spelled incorrectly. It said some very deranged things. There are some things too sick to mention here, but I can relay the basic message as best as I can. Some things you just never forget, even if you want to. So here it is. You will come to my house. When you arrive, I will examine you thoroughly. I will tie you to the post, and you will be punished for what you do. Every inch of your body will be bruised and sore. Afterward, I will untie you and use you in every way possible. You can scream, but no one will hear you. This is your first payment. Upon reading this note and taking this money, you have agreed to follow through. If you do not follow through, you are a stealing, lying whore, and you will be punished more severely than if you cooperated to this initial agreement. You will clean every inch of my house. There will be no mistakes, or there will be more punishment to follow. I got dressed and called the police, and my boss, who finally answered. The police arrived, and I went to the station to explain in detail what happened. I handed them the note, along with the money for evidence. The female police officer, who appeared to be in charge, nonchalantly told me that I should probably quit my job, that this behavior was to be expected from customers. I told her that I had never experienced anything like this before. My boss reviewed the outside video footage. The footage showed a man standing outside of the coffee stand window, just staring inside. Occasionally, it showed him leaning his head into the glass and cupping his hands around his eyes for a better view. It also showed him rubbing his crotch. Apparently, he had been standing outside the window since about 3.40 a.m., 10 minutes after my initial arrival. At one point, it showed him going back to his car, only to reemerge several minutes later and finally tap on the window. I was shocked to realize that the man had watched me for almost a full hour without my knowledge. I felt stupid, but most of all, scared. The footage also revealed that the man had his license plates covered with what appeared to be white paper. After reviewing the footage and the note, the police decided that the man posed a potential threat and that this behavior was not normal. Well, duh. They sent an undercover cop back to the stand with me. I was shocked that they wanted me to go right back to work, not even two hours after the incident. The cop sat outside in an SUV while I worked. The plan was this. If the man drove through again, I was to flick the open sign on and off to alert him of the man's presence. I worked, serving all of my regular customers, trying my best to pretend nothing had happened. I was told not to recall the incident to any of my co-workers or customers that morning, in case they knew the man and warned him of police involvement. The man didn't return that day, but he did return. Little did I know, that day was only the beginning of a year-long nightmare. Edit and Update 
While I had fully intended on updating this post with the subsequent recounting of other creepy occurrences involving this guy, I no longer wish to put my energy into recalling these events. But to those that have supported me, I do want to let you know that I'm fine now, and I will give you a quick synopsis of how things turned out. The stalking continued for a while, almost a year. The stalker left endless creepy gifts for me both at work and at my place of residence, all of which he signed off on as Turner. It got to a point where I couldn't prove it was him, because it would often be sent by courier or a third party. He continued to come by the stand, and at one point even promised to leave me alone. My coworker was there, and we actually managed to have a very brief discussion in which he apologized and agreed that his behavior was inappropriate. However, he resumed his creepy behavior just days later. The police were of no help and kept insisting to me that it would all go away if I just quit my job. I had his license plate, which was out of state, and a vehicle description, but apparently the car wasn't even registered. Despite taking a leave of absence, the stalking continued. I didn't want to quit my job, as this was shortly after the recession. My mom, the sole provider for a family of five, had lost her job, so I wanted to chip in and help her so we wouldn't lose the house. Other bikini stands in the area were not hiring, due to being embroiled in prostitution scandals, all of which were heavily covered by the national media. You have no idea how hard it was, and maybe still is, to get a quote, normal job, after having worked as a bikini barista. Apparently, employers don't like it on your job history too much. A few of the scariest incidents were being assaulted at an ice freezer outside of the coffee stand. Thankfully, he didn't harm me physically, just grabbed me and touched me inappropriately. Turner coming through the drive-thru completely naked while touching himself into a pair of women's underwear. Another incident occurred when my friend gave me a joint that a customer had left for me on her shift. Crazy as it may sound, my regulars fairly often would leave joints in my tip jar instead of money. I asked my coworker for the customer's name, but she didn't get a chance to ask for it. I was told by my coworker that the man had long hair and looked like a hippie, and this fit the description of a customer who would regularly leave me joints in the tip jar. I smoked the joint before I went to sleep one night, only to have a massive freakout. Full-on hallucinations, hysteria. I literally thought I saw ghosts, demons, and fire. I ended up in the hospital. I found out there that in addition to having THC in my system, I also had a bunch of PCP in there as well. Later on, Turner would take credit for this joint by sending a text to my phone, letting me know that if I wanted him to smoke me out, that we could get together sometime. I guess he thought that this weed was enjoyable. Of course, I gave his number to the police. I feel like I gave them enough info to get this guy, but I was just never taken seriously or they had bigger fish to fry. They did find out, however, that the phone he used was a burner. Over this period of time, it was evident that one of my coworkers was sharing my personal information with Turner in exchange for money, or maybe just because she didn't like me, I don't know. This coworker was later arrested on prostitution charges. I ended up relocating and changing my last name, which is surprisingly easy to do. I did this primarily to get away from Turner, but also so I could get a fresh start with a new employment history and get away from the negative energy that had encircled my life. I had taken nude photos of myself from my boyfriend at the time, and after we broke up, he leaked them to everyone on my contact list, including my coworkers, so 
Of course, this meant Turner most likely got a hold of them as well. It may seem strange to you, but after a while, the stalking becomes part of your life. It's kind of like living around a bunch of rattlesnakes. You may feel constantly on guard and on edge, but eventually you work your daily routine around trying your best to avoid the snakes just so you won't get bitten. When it happens, you do your best to move on. I recently found out that a man fitting my stalker's description was incarcerated some time ago for doing something even more frightening to another barista in the Pacific Northwest. There were also similar instances and reports of a man driving through bikini stands naked. I suspect that this man was most likely Turner. I can't be sure if it's the same person, as I was never able to find out this person's true first and last name. But I'm hopeful that it is him, and it will be locked away for a very long time. I'm a woman, I'm Chinese, but I grew up in Sydney, Australia. However, I was born on the outskirts of Beijing, in a large town called Yunggang Residential District, where my mom's family is from. When I was five, we immigrated to Australia, but my family would still travel back to China every few years. This incident happened in the snowy winter of 1997, when I was only 11 years old. My grandparents still lived in Yunggang, and introduced me to a brother and sister who lived in the same building as them. I can't remember their exact ages, but I think the older girl was around 14 and the younger boy was around 6. I still remember the exact outfit that I was wearing when I met them, as I'd been wearing the same outfit the entire trip. At the time, flared jeans were in, and coming from Australia, I wasn't prepared for the snow and coldness of the Chinese winter. So on my first or second day there, my Chinese cousin had taken me to a shopping mall where she'd helped me haggle down the price of a bright pink duffel coat with fluffy white trimming. I thought it was the most fashionable thing ever and wore it every day. I have photos of me from the trip wearing that exact outfit. We walked around town and ended up going to a very large park with a lake inside of it. It was a little bit of a distance from the center of town. We were playing by the shore, throwing rocks, joking around, and having a good time. At some point, I looked up and realized that it was near dusk, although it probably wasn't very late, but considering it was winter, the sun set early. The park, which had never been very busy to start with, was nearly deserted. There were still some other people there, but they were a fair distance away from us. All except for two men, who seemed to appear almost out of nowhere. They were middle to late middle-aged, the quote-unquote uncle type. One of them approached me and said he was a friend of my father's, and that my father had asked him to pick us up. I remember being utterly confused by this statement, because my dad didn't live in this town, and he was in another district about two hours away from Beijing, where his family called home. Pretty quickly, I realized that something was off, and so did that brother-sister combo I was with. We all started making excuses as we attempted to distance ourselves from these people. I remember very clearly that as we started backing away, the man who had approached us looked back over his shoulder at his companion, as if asking him what he should do. The companion was standing a little distance away, taking note of the surroundings, while appearing to motion towards the parking lot of the park, which, if I'm recalling this accurately, only had one vehicle in it at this moment. A large white van 
with sliding side doors. Even as a child, I completely believed that he was considering snatching one of us and making a run for it. However, perhaps because there were three of us, and maybe because there were still people around in the park, they didn't do anything. As we walked away rapidly, I looked back over my shoulder and remember seeing the two men just standing there, watching us as we went. That 15 to 20 minute walk back was one of the scariest walks in my life, as I all but felt someone grabbing me from behind every few seconds. The sun set just as we got into the building and burst in through the door, so happy to be home safe. I told my mom and grandmother about it, but at the time, child kidnappings in China were much less of a massive and widespread news story as they are now. I think my mom especially felt that me being almost kidnapped was somehow a commentary on her parenting skills and was very dismissive then and even now she dislikes it when I bring it up. Now that organized child or bride kidnappings are such a huge story in China, it often makes me shiver at night to think how different my fate could have been. There have been so many stories about young women, girls, kidnapped and forced into becoming brides of villagers in remote countrysides, sometimes tied to beds and having their legs broken to prevent them from running away. They're forced to bear children one after another. No one in the village will help them because almost all the men in the village have purchased brides from traffickers in this way. There's also stories of boys being kidnapped and placed into families who have been unable to have kids or adopt legally. They fare a bit better but can also be abused and neglected. Now that I have my own kids and we're safe and warmly tucked in my bed in Sydney, I sometimes think about how wildly and irrevocably my life might have been derailed that snowy evening in Yungong. All I can do is shudder and hold my kids tightly. Another good old story from South Africa. As people from there know, there's a lot of game farms, lodges, things of that sort, especially around the area of the Kruger National Park. This incident took place on a very tranquil, four-star game farm close to the southern tip of the above-mentioned Kruger National Park. We had frequented the lodge for over five years before this situation took place, as it was a favorite with me and my wife, who was then my girlfriend. The lodge had a very nice central area with a pool, a restaurant, and then the tented chalets were spread out around, with the furthest one about a kilometer from the restaurant. The chalets were very private and set up in the bush so you could not see the next one over and you could only hear your neighbors if they were being very loud. Sadly, the lodge has fallen on hard times and has gone backwards a bit. The weekend this incident took place, only two of the 25 plus units were occupied for the Friday night and we were the only ones there for Saturday night. It made me feel a little uneasy to make matters worse. The lodge farm manager came by on Saturday morning, saying he was leaving the farm for the weekend, and if we needed anything, to just help ourselves in the restaurant fridges and leave a note, then we can settle the bill next week. Sure, no problem. We have the pool and jacuzzi all for ourselves. We left to go for a visit to the K&P after the manager left and stayed out most of the day. We got back around 3pm, and as we got out of the car, I got goosebumps. It was 35 degrees C, over 100 degrees Fahrenheit, 
so I definitely didn't get cold. As we approached the chalet, we parked maybe 150 meters from it and had a little path that we walked down. But as we approached, I noticed big shoe prints over my and my girlfriend's prints from this morning. That seriously put me on edge. I approached the chalet and noticed the prints turn around and walk back the way they came. Everything seemed to be in order at the chalet, so I tried not to stress. We went for a swim and a bit of a game drive around the farm before returning at about 5.30. Started to make fire, barbecue the meat, and prepare some other food. But both me and my girlfriend seemed on edge, very quiet. We sat down to eat around 8 p.m. As we sat down, I looked at her. She had this unavoidable look of worry on her face. I asked her what was wrong. She said she had a bad feeling and that we have to go. I agreed with her, said that I felt the same, and that we needed to leave now. Not after we ate. Now. We chucked our food in the cooler, grabbed our bags, and ran to the car. Jumped in and almost raced out of there. As we went out the gate, dropped the keys in the box, and drove away, the feeling of dread slowly faded. We made the 150-kilometer drive home in the dark and slept in our own bed. We woke up that Sunday and went about our day as normal. But about 4 p.m. that afternoon, my phone rings, and I see it's the number from the lodge manager. I answer, and he frantically asks if we're okay. I say, yeah, why? He starts explaining, and that's when my blood runs cold. Apparently, the lodge was broken into and ransacked that Saturday night. They took everything of value, and what they couldn't take, they destroyed. It was a group of five men that broke in. Apparently, there was evidence that they ransacked the chalet as well, but only one, the one my girlfriend and I were booked into. The one we would have been sleeping in had we not left so abruptly the previous night. This confirmed to me that they were watching us. The lodge had cameras, but the chalets did not. We left just after 8 p.m., probably about 8.10 by the time we got everything in the car and began driving, no later than 8.20 when we left the farm, as it's about two kilometers from the lodge to the gate down a gravel road, and the cameras caught the first signs of movement at the lodge just before 8.30 p.m. At least one man was visibly armed with a firearm, and a few had machetes. I shudder to think what could have happened had we been there. The nearest people would have been over three kilometers away, and we were completely alone on that farm. Only a little bit of cell reception at the lodge, and absolutely none at the chalet itself. We wouldn't have even been able to call for help. Needless to say, we did not go to lodges or isolated areas for a long time after that. And sadly, the lodge and farm went under not long after. The incident shocked us both more than just a bit and we vowed to always trust our instinct and intuition, and to tell each other if something felt off. We both had that uneasy feeling since about 3 p.m. that afternoon when we came back, but the reason that neither of us said anything was because we didn't want to spoil the weekend for the other. That almost cost us the ultimate price. So the lesson to be learned here is trust your gut. Trust your partner's gut feeling. If something feels off, it's because it probably is. It may just as well save your life.
I am and have been a paramedic for about 10 years. My entire career has been spent in emergency medicine, responding to 911 calls and providing advanced life support for life-threatening illnesses and injuries. The calls we respond to range from inappropriate use of an ambulance to minutes away from death, and oftentimes, it's already too late. This story in particular is going to be dark. I apologize in advance if there are people that hear this story and are affected by the nature of it. It's going to be graphic, and I'm not going to gloss over any details, because the imagery is important. As awful as this story is, I want to make something good come from it. I want to use this story to preach a little, and hope that if it finds someone somewhere, that it could help them. As stated above, this content may not be suitable for everyone, but again, I believe that it's important. This is going to be a long one, so settle in. With all of that out of the way, this story is my Vietnam. I had been working for a couple of years as a paramedic after I graduated from school. The place I worked primarily was in the city, but our service area was the entire county, which is very rural. When you're in school and go on ride-alongs, you practice your skills with your preceptors on patients, very similar to residency or internship. Your exposure to the job is what you get while on those ride-alongs. Sometimes you get seriously injured patients, and it's terrifying because you don't always know what to do. You're still learning. But you have your preceptor at your back to protect you from any fuck-ups and guide you along the way. Sometimes, though, you don't get lucky enough to experience some of these horrible things. To some, that may seem like a good thing, but it's important to experience these as it prepares you for a time when you're all alone. There are a couple of terms we use, called white cloud and black cloud. White cloud refers to a person, either student or professional, who never gets the exciting, serious calls. The calls always seem to come when you are just getting off shift or you left the area of where the call came in. And now another ambulance gets to take it. And this white cloud can follow this person for any length of time. Black cloud is the opposite. When I was in school, I was a white cloud. I got a few cardiac arrests, bad accidents, things like that, but nothing that ever really stood out as unique. So a couple of years into my career, this white cloud is still kind of lingering over me. That's not to say I hadn't had bad calls before that. I had, but it's not the same. The day this story takes place is Christmas Eve. I work from 7 a.m. Christmas Eve to 7 a.m. Christmas Day. From what I remember, the day itself was pretty slow. Most people are with their families, not going outside, getting into accidents, or causing mischief. I was working with a charge medic at the time and a brand new EMT who was going through his field training. A few of my coworkers had made a Christmas dinner that day, so we all had hot food to enjoy while we had to work and be away from our families. At our station, we had two ambulances there with two crews, myself, my partner, and our field training officer, along with the other crew. When night comes, if a call comes into our station, the two crews just rotate calls that way, there's an even dispersal of work. It was around 11 p.m., and I was sitting in the recliner watching TV. A call came in that required us to respond out to the county. One of the guys on the other crew, who happened to be a friend of mine, was asleep in the recliner next to me, so I took the call. 
The call was initially for a woman who had fallen and hit her head, but was conscious and breathing. Due to the nature of the injury, we responded emergent. It was probably about a 15-minute drive to get to the person's house. As we were getting close, dispatch informs us, now the patient is not conscious, but still breathing. As we approach the residence, driving down the street where this little development happened to be, there's flashing lights everywhere. Sheriff's deputies, police, fire department, they were all there, with some even blocking the entrance to the street. For just a simple head injury, we thought that this was pretty weird, and it set a weird vibe for the entire call. One of the deputies saw us coming and moved his car, allowing us through. Once we made our way past, this part of the street ended in a cul-de-sac with houses all around it. People were standing on their front porches around, looking at what was going on. We arrived at the address. There's a vehicle parked in the driveway, still running with officers all around it. The driver's side door was open, and there was an officer standing there and looking like he was talking to somebody who was sitting in the driver's seat. I walked up first with my partner and our EMT behind me. As I approached the rear of the vehicle, I see there is definitely someone sitting inside. There's also a man, middle-aged, in plain clothes, standing in front of the vehicle, his lower half lit up by the headlights. He has his hands in his pockets, and he's looking rather intently at the person in the vehicle. I walk up to the officer and get a report from him. While the officer is telling me what's going on, I look at the person in the driver's seat. The person sitting there was a middle-aged woman, maybe mid-40s, early 50s, sitting back with her head against the headrest, her arms hanging down by her side. I can visibly see her breathing, hear her moaning, but not talking. Her eyes are also closed. There's a bit of blood running down from her head, past her cheeks and down to her chin. There's also a small stream of blood coming from her nose. The officer tells me that she was inside with the family when she came outside to get something from the car. The officer says that the woman's husband, gesturing to the man standing in front of the car, came out to check on her because she had been out here for a while. When the husband saw his wife bleeding, he figured she must have fallen or hit her head on something, so he immediately called 911. The officer tells me that the woman has not been responding to him. I attempt to speak to her. She doesn't answer me, but continues to moan. I perform a sternum rub to cause painful stimuli and hope to get some sort of reaction, but there is none. I ask the husband if she's been drinking tonight or if she abuses any drugs that he knows of. He says that she's had a few glasses of wine, but no drug use. At this point, I'm thinking she has a head injury and potentially a brain bleed because she's not responding appropriately. I stand where the officer was standing in the driver's side door as I'm performing my assessment. I can't see where the blood is coming from, so I figure she has a laceration or something in her hair that isn't visible. It's at this time that the officer comes up to me. He says, We also found this in the driver's side door compartment. He produces a revolver. I look at the officer and then down at the firearm. He looks at me, holds it out. I grab the revolver and flip out the cylinder, at the same time thinking to myself, Oh, fuck. In the cylinder is one brass casing with the primer indented, meaning that a round has been fired. With this new information, and based on the bleeding, I assume that the patient had put the gun to her temple or something like that. The fact that she's still breathing and making noises leads me to assume that she missed, or the bullet miraculously bounced off 
if she held it at a weird angle. Due to the potential for significant head trauma, I decided that we need to place a cervical collar on the woman, in case of a spinal injury as well. I asked one of the firefighters to grab a collar out of our ambulance. I open the back door of the vehicle and get in behind the woman so I can hold her head stable while the fireman attaches the collar. It's only when I do this that I see what's really going on. As I slide in behind the patient, I can see the back of her head, and that's something that I will never be able to unsee. Looking at the back of her head, I see a grapefruit-sized hole. With my flashlight, I look at the hole and it's nearly empty, except for a large piece of skull that is floating on top of a blood and brain soup. I look up, and on the headliner of the vehicle is a two-foot-in-diameter halo of blood and brain pointed above her, with tiny pieces of skull stuck into the fabric. I look back at the hole. It's a chilly night, so I can see heat vapors coming out of the hole, similar to how you would be able to see your breath on a cold day. I look out the vehicle at my partner, and I say, we need to go now. It was either the look on my face or his sense that caused him to peek inside the vehicle to see what I was seeing. His eyes grew wide, and all he said was, holy shit. Our EMT quickly went to the ambulance and grabbed the stretcher and backboard. Up until this point, we were taking our time carefully getting her out of the vehicle, but now, carefully and slowly, turned into just get her out of the vehicle. Our EMT also grabbed me a few large trauma dressings and gauze wrap. I placed the trauma dressing over the hole and wrapped the ever-living shit out of it around her head so that when we moved her onto the stretcher, nothing would spill out. With the help of the fire department and police, we moved the woman onto the backboard and put her on the stretcher. The whole time, the husband had been standing at the front of the vehicle watching, not understanding what had happened. As we get the woman on the stretcher, he comes over and I can see now that he has tears on his face. He bends down, kisses her on the cheek and says, I love you. We quickly get the woman in the ambulance. Due to her injuries, her cerebrum, the largest part of her brain, is almost completely gone, meaning she has no motor function, no muscle function, and no cognitive abilities. Her brain stem, however, is still intact. The bullet had missed it. The brainstem controls the body's autonomic functions, like respiratory rate, heart rate, and blood pressure. Due to this, when we moved the woman to the stretcher, her tongue fell against the back of her oral airway, causing a blockage. I knew immediately that this was going to happen, so I had my partner set up the intubation supplies for me. In the ambulance, I placed the laryngoscope, bladed device used for intubation, into the patient's mouth to move her jaw and tongue forward opening her airway. I see the hole on the roof of the woman's mouth. I slide the endotracheal tube through the woman's vocal cords into her trachea. This gives us a secured airway so we can ventilate the patient. My partner uses an intraosseous needle to obtain vascular access. It does the same thing as an IV, but it goes in the bone and medication and fluids are absorbed by the bone marrow. I place the PT on the cardiac monitor, check her blood pressure and oxygen. At the time, I thought it was the strangest thing. Her blood pressure was actually good. Her heart rate was normal, her oxygen was good, and her cardiac rhythm was normal as well. We begin our transport to the hospital, and I give them a heads up, activating the trauma team. After the call, we went back to the station to restock the ambulance and to clean up. 
That's when I saw all the bits of bone and blood on my pants and shirt. Luckily, the charge medic let me go home and take a shower, put on a new pair of clothes. After I changed, I went back into work, and the rest of the shift was rather uneventful. I learned the next morning, around 9am, that the family had decided to remove life support, and the woman passed away. For many years after that call, I didn't notice a change. I kept doing what I did best, and never really thought I had been affected by it, until I realized that I was. A couple of years ago, I had a bad relationship that made me start thinking about myself and how I am. It was something that was always there, but I never really thought anything about it. I just thought it was my personality and who I developed into as an adult. I realized just how angry I always was. I wasn't a mean person, but very simple stupid things would set me off, and I had a bad temper to boot. I was very cynical at the world, I still am, and what I thought was a stomach problem, I started thinking maybe it's anxiety. I decided that I wanted to figure out what caused me to be this way. I wanted to figure out why I think the way I do, why I act the way that I do. So I decided to see a psychologist. After many visits, my psychologist came up with the PTSD diagnosis. I hated it at the time. I hated being categorized as someone with PTSD. It didn't make any sense. I can handle anything. Nothing bothers me. But during those visits, as we conversed, the one thing that kept coming up was that call. I didn't realize how much it actually affected me, how much of a wall that I built to shut everyone out and to not see who I really am, to protect myself. The more I thought about it, the more I came to realize that it probably does make sense. The reason I tell this story the way I do, with the graphic detail, is because I think everyone needs to understand in its entirety how mental health not only affects a single person, but everyone around them. Like I said, I'm going to get a little preachy, so if you don't want to listen to this, I understand, but I urge you to. This is something we talk about at work quite a bit, and there are several co-workers on the ambulance, even now, that I talk with about this stuff. One of, if not the number one cause of death in first responders, is suicide. If you or someone you know has thought about or attempted it in the past, you need to know, taking your life doesn't affect only you. You may think it'll be better this way, but I assure you, it will not be. People often say how selfish it is, and it's true, because once you're gone, you have no idea the amount of lives that have been impacted by you. If you don't think this is true or that no one will care, maybe you need to go back and re-listen to my story because I guarantee people care. I care. So find someone, anyone to just talk to. Be honest. Let them know how you're feeling. I know it's hard. It was hard for me, but it does get better, and you just have to try. So if anyone you know has or does struggle with mental health issues, reach out. Just be an ear. You don't have to try and solve the problem, but just listen. If you listen, you may just hear something that can help save someone's life. And if you struggle with mental health issues and think there's no one for you to talk to, you're wrong. It can be a professional. It can be the person you consider a close friend or relative. If you feel like none of these options work for you or that you're considering doing something dangerous, go to your local emergency room. Call 911 because that is what we are all here for. Police, fire, EMS, ER staff. People may not think of these people to call when you're having a mental emergency, but 
I can tell you firsthand that we deal with this a lot more than you think, and we are trained to deal with people in these types of situations, all of us. Even if you don't know what to say, if you even just make the call, it will get things started and hopefully you find the help that you deserve. This number is for the National Suicide Hotline, 1-800-273-8255. You can call from anywhere at any time. They're available for anyone in crisis or emotional distress. I just want to reiterate, there is always someone to talk to. I'm a 36-year-old female, and I wish that this wasn't real, but unfortunately, it is. Let me start by saying just how crazy it is that children are so very trusting, but then again, maybe it was just me. When I was seven years old, my parents and I were living in a basement apartment in the Bronx. The way the apartment was set up had my mother and father's room at one end of a short hall, the bathroom in the middle, and my room at the other end. If you don't know anything about a basement apartment, just know that it doesn't take much effort to enter one through a window. One very early morning, possibly around 5 or 6 a.m., I was woken up by a very sharp pain in one of my butt cheeks. I got up thinking our cat had gotten into my room and had bit me as she used to nip hard and attack at whatever she felt like, toes included. I jumped up looking for her only to see a grown man sitting on my bed. I remember being upset and asking him, why did you pinch me? To which he hushed me and said something about him being thirsty. I remember tugging my nightgown down to cover my butt and asking him if he wanted juice or water. I wasn't scared at all, more surprised and mad that this man had pinched my butt hard. He said that he wanted juice, so I left my room and closed my door with him still sitting on my bed. I walked to the kitchen and got him some juice. As I was bringing the cup back to my room, I looked at my parents' door and thought that I should wake them up, but can't remember why I decided against it. I ended up giving the man the cup, and he drank the juice down quickly. I remember that he asked me if I could help him find his friend, and him telling me that he was lost. I remember that my dad had told me that I wasn't allowed to go outside without him or my mother. They were worried as this was a new neighborhood and we had only moved in maybe two weeks earlier. I remember being scared to go outside because I didn't want my parents to be upset with me. So I told them that I had to wake up my parents to ask. I remember that he said that it would be real quick because he knew his friend was somewhere in the area and we would be able to find him quickly. I once again said no and told him that I wasn't allowed to go outside without my parents. So he ended up saying that he didn't need my help anymore and that he would find his friend by himself. He asked me to lock the door behind him, so I walked him out and locked the front door, waving him goodbye. I tried to go back to sleep, but it was too late. I was already awake. So I started watching cartoons. Well, the volume happened to be louder than expected because my mother woke up and asked me why I was awake so early. I told her all about the man pinching my butt, to which at first she didn't believe me as she thought that I had had a bad dream. But she lifted up my nightgown, and I guess that I must have had a visible bruise. I will never forget just how calm she got, and she started smiling at me with a very sweet voice asking me what did he look like, what happened, and if I remember what he was wearing. I told her 
to which she left my room, coming back with my dad. She then told me to tell him everything using the same sweet voice, and I did. I didn't think that I was in trouble or anything, and I thought that I had made a new friend. After telling them about my new friend, they got dressed and started searching. Well, it didn't take long, because that man happened to be a family member of the building manager. When I saw him, I immediately shouted at him, Hey friend! My parents told me to go inside at that point, which I did. Maybe an hour or so later, my parents came back with McDonald's for me, but they seemed angry. Before the end of the day, my father put a padlock on my door and told me that whenever I go to sleep, to always lock my door, as our kitchen windows didn't have a lock. And that's how that man got in. Sometime later, I was probably around 15, I found out that the guy was mentally ill and had been sent away from the country by his family so that he wouldn't get arrested for something he did with another little girl. It still surprises me that I wasn't scared, but I do want to say, please, if you or anyone you know lives in a basement, ground level apartment, or flat, please triple check that all the window locks work and lock your windows up tight every night. You never know who may be trying to get in. This scene happened when I was 21 years old. I lived in a smaller town outside of a huge city in the Midwest. This was in 1981. I worked at a fast food restaurant and they stayed open until 3 a.m. My then husband worked for a bowling alley as a manager and he was never off before 2 a.m. himself. I was expecting my first child and business was slow, so I ended up getting sent home at about 1 a.m. In the town we lived in, there was a large private girls' college. Women were being warned and encouraged to lock their car doors because two males were on the loose and targeting women around my age. They were following women home to attack them or forcing lone traveling women off the road late at night. The men were whipping and killing these women. They had killed three by this point. Two of the women were found on deserted roads and one in her apartment. There was no description of these men or what kind of vehicle they drove. I left work that night climbing into my car, locked my doors, and started for home. But the hair on the back of my neck nearly immediately stood on end, and my gut feeling told me that something was very wrong. I figured out that I was being followed. I took several turns around town trying to shake this car, but to no avail. The advice given was that if you thought you were being followed, to drive to the nearest police station. But we had recently moved to this area, so I had no idea where the police station was. I was terrified, panicked, and couldn't think what to do. This was obviously in the days with no cell phones, although there were an abundance of payphones, and some were even made with long enough cords that you could pull up to them in your car, sit in your driver's seat, put the window down, and make your call from the car. You still had to deposit money in order to talk, even if you were calling 911. I thought briefly about trying to get to one of these phones, but I was too scared and didn't think that I could have a coin ready in time before these men could have time to approach me. My parents lived about four streets over from where I lived, and I decided that the safest decision was to try to make it to my parents' house. I was still being followed by the time I reached my parents' street. There was a short block you could go around by my parents' house, and I went around this block three times. Every time I did, 
I honked my horn. You would have thought that laying on the horn might have discouraged these creeps from continuing to follow me, but it had no effect. If anything, they just moved in closer behind me. I pulled into my parents' driveway, and these creepers pulled right in behind me, turning their lights off. I heard their doors open and shut. It was beyond terror that I felt at this point. They were out of their car, one coming up on one side, the other coming up on the other. My parents' house was a split level, and you pulled up in front of a double car garage. In order to get into the house, you had to go in through the garage door or front door, and the front door was to the left of the driveway, about two car lengths away, plus a set of steps. I laid on the horn again, but they just kept coming. My dad, who is retired military, oftentimes stayed up late at night watching TV, and thank God he did this night. All of a sudden, the porch light turns on, and he bursts out the front door. He assessed the situation instantly, and started yelling at these creeps to get the fuck away from my car, all the while barreling down the steps towards them. At first, they didn't retreat very fast, but they must have thought better. My dad is a very big guy, about 6 feet 4 inches tall, 260 pounds, a former college football player, and he wore size 15 triple E shoes. He made it to the front of their car and pounded on the hood before they were able to burn rubber, reversing out of the driveway. While he was unable to get a license number because they didn't have a front plate, he was able to describe them and give the make and model to the police. The police told me just how fortunate I was that my dad had realized what a dire situation I was in. I still get chills thinking back to that night. I remember as if it were yesterday. My dad said that he thought he heard a car honk more than once, and then he heard me in the driveway. He had just shut off the TV and was heading for bed when I pulled in. Thank God my dad acted so quickly, or I might not be telling this story today. This incident has caused me to be hyper aware of my surroundings, and I never turn into my driveway without making sure that I'm not being followed. Always be mindful of where you are. Don't walk around with your headphones in or phone pressed up to your ear. This may be an opportunistic moment for someone with ill intentions. Know where your local police station is, and if you ever get that gut feeling that something is wrong, drive into the police station. I guarantee you that the police are more than happy to help you out. Better safe than sorry. The police did capture these creeps about two weeks later, and they weren't able to claim a fourth victim. They were both on probation for kidnapping and rape. They served their time and decided that killing their victims left no witnesses. My dad is still my hero today, and I have no doubt in my heart that his quick actions prevented me from being the fourth victim. This story happened about 32 years ago in East Texas. My mom and dad divorced when I was 16 years old, and my brothers and I lived with my mom. Our dad would visit us every once in a while, but not really on a consistent basis. He was a bit of a gambler, which was one of the reasons my parents split up, and he tended not to come around when he was broke. But on rare occasion that he won big, he would visit and spend money on us, and then disappear all over again. My dad said he had a job as a shuttle driver for a local hotel. He told my brothers and me that the shuttle driving was just a cover, that he actually worked for organized crime, which he claimed owned the hotel. He said that his real job was to drive out to various places in the area 
to pick up fugitives running from warrants or otherwise wanted by law enforcement, bring them to the hotel to hide, and then later they would move on by means my dad said he didn't know. My dad was always a blowhard and always exaggerating or out and out lying, so my brothers and I just blew it off and didn't think much of the claim until something strange happened. My dad disappeared. It was 1988, and I was 22 years old at the time and a college student still living at home. I worked as a full-time disc jockey on the overnight shift, 10 p.m. to 7 a.m., at the local radio station. My middle brother was 19, lived in an apartment with a friend, and worked at a nearby Dairy Queen. My youngest brother was 9 and obviously lived at home. One day, my middle brother called my mom and I and asked us if we knew where dad was. He says some men came to the Dairy Queen while he was at work and asked him if he'd seen my dad recently. My brother truthfully told them that he hadn't seen or heard from dad in months, but that he often does that, cuts off contact for months at a time. My brother said these men didn't say who they were, but seemed satisfied with his reasoning and left. My brother wondered if these men or anyone had called to talk to us and ask us where dad was. We also had not heard from my dad in months. The following day, my brother says the men returned to his work, and this time flashed badges and claimed to be FBI agents. He says they were aggressive and demanded that my brother tell them where my dad was. My brother kept insisting, truthfully, that he didn't know where my dad was, and that the last that he heard, he worked at a local hotel as a shuttle driver. But the experience upset him, and he phoned us to let us know what had happened. Upset by this herself, my mom called the hotel where my dad worked. The man she spoke to said my dad hadn't been to work for weeks at this point, but that they had no idea where he went either. The following day, my brother was at work when his roommate called and said that someone had apparently been in their apartment. The roommate claimed that when he got home from work, he found the sliding glass door open and the place had been ransacked, although nothing appeared to be missing. My brother, not knowing what to make of this, went back to his apartment and found that in fact, his address book was missing from the breakfast nook, and a teddy bear he recently bought for his son and a photo of his son were missing from his bedroom. Now, all of us, my brother, myself, and my mom, were beside ourselves with anger, fear, and all kinds of paranoia. We went to the local FBI office to complain that the, quote, FBI had done this, and to tell them once and for all, my brother does not know where my dad is. Well, as you might have guessed, the FBI claimed no knowledge of the event and claimed that they were not looking for my dad whatsoever. They said none of their agents had contacted my brother. Furthermore, when my mother told them my dad had claimed that he worked for organized crime, the FBI would neither confirm nor deny that the hotel had ties to organized crime or that there was an investigation going on. My mom called the hotel again and told the manager that men were looking for my dad that they were terrorizing my brother and flat out asked the guy if there was any truth to my dad's claim to be working for organized crime. The man laughed and told her, Lady, there's no such thing as the mafia. While we were trying to make sense of all these weird details, we kept wondering why my brother was being harassed, but not my mother or me. That's when I was reminded of a weird event that I had happened to me about two or three weeks prior. Because I worked overnight, I was often wide awake in the middle of the night on my days off, with absolutely nothing to do. One night, 
I went to the local cable TV company where my friend worked as a computer system operator to hang out with him for a few hours and BS a little. At about 3 a.m., he had a big computer job to do, so it was time for me to go home, and I left. As soon as I pulled out from his company's driveway, a car was immediately behind me, tailgating me. I mean, he was on me so quickly that it scared the crap out of me. The car seemed to just appear out of nowhere. The driver also had his high beams on, so he was basically blinding me, and I couldn't make out anything about the car that was behind me. I couldn't see inside to see how many people were in the car, what they looked like, or anything. I couldn't even make out what kind of car it was. I changed lanes to let the tailgater pass, but he changed lanes right along with me. I moved again, and he moved again. He was tailgating me, blinding me, and now seemed to be following me. I stopped at the intersection and got in the left turning lane with my signal on, and he did the same. Since there was no other traffic at all anywhere around, when the light changed, I zoomed across the intersection, streaked across all the lanes of traffic into the far right lane, and went through the intersection, doing my best to lose him. But of course, he followed me. Now, it was absolutely clear that he was doing just that. I cut into a nearby neighborhood and tried to lose him, but he kept following me anyway. I finally managed to zoom back out to the intersection and cross over and went to the 7-Eleven at the corner, jumped out, ran inside and yelled to the clerk that somebody was following me. As I did, I saw the car that was following me cut through the parking lot of 7-Eleven, and for the first time, I got a look at the car. It was a late model, tan-colored four-door, and there were two white guys in it. The clerk just blew me off, said I was exaggerating that it was probably just kids messing with me, and to let it go. I left, but I was still spooked by it, and didn't want to go straight home. I was afraid they might follow me, and I didn't want them to know where I lived, so I went back to work. I knew that the disc jockey on the air that night would be my friend Paula, so I decided to go visit her on the air for a little while, hang out, and calm down. I told her what happened, and hung around for about two hours. She also felt it was probably just some punks being jerks, and that calmed me down. But when I got home, now over two hours since this car had harassed me, that same damn car was at my house. As I was coming down the street to my apartments and about to turn right, I saw the damn car pull out of my apartments, and as it passed me, the SOBs flashed their high beams on and off at me. It was them. I panicked and called Paula at the radio station and told her what happened. She was freaked. She was like, oh my god, why would they wait for you at home? Who is this? Dude, call the police. I was freaked out as to how they could possibly know where I lived. Why would they wait two hours for me, and then when they finally saw me, flash their lights at me, and take off? But now, remembering that event and putting it together with my brother's FBI visit and apartment break-in, it seemed obvious that it was all tied together. I hadn't thought about it before, but now I remembered. My car was actually my dad's car. He gave it to me about two months earlier when he got a new one. So if someone had been looking for my dad, they might have thought I was him. And when they saw me coming home, realized that I wasn't him and just left. But who was messing with us and why? Where was my dad? Why are these strange people harassing us? My mom, brother, and I went to the local police and filed a missing persons report, along with a complaint. 
we spoke to a very nice detective about it all. About five days later, we got a call from the detective, and he had solved the whole strange case. It turns out, my dad disappeared because he owed his employers more than $50,000 in gambling debts. The detective confirmed that my dad did work for some, quote, unsavory characters, but said they weren't organized crime per se. He had no idea if my dad was shuttling fugitives or not. He said my dad was hiding out in the state of Nevada, and that he had spoken to him, and he was alive and well, but hiding. We asked, then who the hell were those men, and why were they bothering my brother? The detective explained that it's not uncommon for unsavory bounty hunters and debt collectors to impersonate law enforcement, to call and harass people. My brother asked, how did they get in my apartment? The detective said, a sliding glass door is easy peasy to open, and they probably stole the address book hoping it had my dad's contact information in it. They stole the teddy bear and pictures to use to scare my brother, which worked. I asked the detective why the men only harassed my brother and not my mom and me. The detective said, because my dad had used my brother as a reference on his job application at the hotel and gave my brother's address and phone number. The FBI agents probably figured he was close to my dad and either maintained contact with him or if threatened, would contact him. So my dad eventually turned back up in town and acted like nothing had ever happened. He never spoke of the incident and we never brought it back up. I guess he found a way to get that money that he owed them. I don't know. But that's my story. Thanks for listening. So this was May 2017. My husband John and I own a five-floor, hundred-year-old building, which has our business in it, an antique mall, our apartment upstairs, and various other tenants. We'd had several back-to-back -back burglaries in the prior years and had reinforced the front doors of the business pretty intensely. Aggressive steel bars, more cameras, things of the like. Anyway, at about 3 a.m., we were sound asleep upstairs, as one typically is. But then we got a call from Sonatrol, our security company. We had a motion detect in an unusual location. Not the main floor where 90% of the jewelry is, but downstairs. That sort of thing is usually a spider on the camera, or a mouse, or something explainable. So we ran out less than prepared. I was only wearing a tank top, undies, and flip-flops. John didn't grab his baseball bat, but at least he had pants. I went one way to check the front door, which was still intact, and John went the other to check around back. That's when I heard John's voice ring out, and he said, someone's inside. So I fumbled with my phone, trying to dial 911. In that situation, your monkey brain is in the driver's seat, and your phone is the black monolith from the movie 2001. Finally, I managed it and rounded the backside of the building, narrating to the 911 operator what was happening. Broken glass, broken window. I told dispatch, Oh my God, they're in here. Please come now. Then there was an unholy crash. It sounded like everything inside the building was being smashed to bits. The feeling of listening to someone busy destroying your livelihood is something I can't quite capture. Who was in there? How many? What path of destruction was being laid? I could only yell down the phone at a faceless voice, begging for help that I knew was still minutes away. Bear in mind, I was freshly awake and in a horrible situation 
barely clothed, and it seemed to be escalating by the second. As it turned out, the burglar, Troy, had come face to face with John as he tried to exit the building out of the broken window. They had locked eyes and Troy said, oh shit, and reversed direction back into the depths of the building. Then he dropped his backpack with all the stolen merch, flung himself boldly over our giant iron security gate, smashed through the restaurant tenant's door, and then subsequently out their main door. At that point, he'd caught a lot of glass to the face and body and was bleeding pretty good. John caught him on the exit and f***ing pounced on him, full body slammed to the cement as he attempted to pin Troy. Adrenaline is a wild thing. I wasn't crying but urgently begging the operator to hurry. Hurry. I was terrified that I was going to see my husband die right before my eyes. And then I ran right into the fray because, again, adrenaline. It gets right up on you and you just do the stupidest shit. They were in the middle of the street, dimly orange lit by the street lights, and it was hard to parse what was going on. I thank sweet baby Jesus that Troy didn't have a weapon that night and was wildly unprepared to have a madman tackle him in the dark. As it turned out, he had committed hundreds of burglaries and had never been caught. John had the upper hand though and had Troy fully pinned down and Troy was wisely playing possum. Suddenly, we heard a roaring engine and someone laying rubber. Apparently, I began screaming. Yeah. It was Troy's getaway driver, his wife, Kelsey. She leaned out her window and yelled, get the fuck off of him or I'm gonna kill the bitch. That was me, the bitch. Clearly captured on audio, but I don't remember it being said at all. Not willing to wait, she then tried to run me over. I vaguely remember realizing things were going horribly wrong, but desperately trying to read the license plate into the phone with an idiotic laser focus. It was out of state, and I struggled to read it. And that's all. My brain deleted how close she'd come to turning me into a bloody smear, within maybe a foot of me, fast, while I dodged like a badly clothed matador, clutching at my phone. We had to listen to the 911 recording a year later in the prosecutor's office, synced with the video. The video was from a nearby business, with really good exterior cameras. John started crying. He had no idea what a close call that it was. The engine revving overwhelmed my screaming at a certain point. My voice was blown out. I was trying to chant the license number like an incantation, but you can't hear it because the engine roar, plus the squealing tires. John let Troy go, of course. Troy jumped into the car, and they tore off down the street. The police showed up maybe a minute later, but the assailants were already gone. Anyway. Troy had bled all over John from the door glass. John freaked out so hard later. We figured that Troy was likely using IV drugs, correctly assumed as it turned out, and I had to inspect Jim for cuts, using a flashlight to make sure that I missed nothing, although he still got tested. Unlike a number of other incidents, this one was taken pretty seriously by the law, due to the amount of evidence, as well as violence and, you know, the attempted murder. Several months later, they arrested Troy and Kelsey. They had Troy's DNA from the bloody clothes that John was wearing and all over the car that they'd been driving, which had been stolen, but ditched. It turned out 
They were wanted in five different counties for hundreds of commercial burglaries over several years to support their oxy habit. We were the only fuck up they made. They didn't know we lived on the premises. Kelsey, the wife, flipped on Troy. They accepted a plea for her, much to my displeasure since she was the one that tried to kill me. At least she ratted him out six ways to Sunday. Troy refused a plea. He wanted a trial. Speaking for all key witnesses out there, trials suck. You get interviewed alone by the defense team. Did you know they can lie? Because they sure can. They won't in front of the jury, but one-on-one, -on -one, they'll eat your soul and pick their teeth with the shards. You don't get a lawyer. You're on team prosecution. Theoretically, I can understand it, but it's still utterly maddening. They took me in first. They played the 911 tape, second time I'd heard it. They insisted that because I kept saying, they're inside, that I was lying and there was someone else, not Troy or Kelsey. Sorry, I just used it as a non-gendered pronoun, guys. I hadn't yet seen the person, so they were a they, which is what I told them, adamantly. Then they took John. They told John that I admitted I'd lied and there was another person inside the building. He luckily laughed and was like, absolutely the fuck not she didn't. Finally, the day before trial, Troy accepted a plea. Thank God. I had been having the stupidest meltdown ever. Do I dye my hair something other than purple? What shoes do I wear? I don't have conservative shoes. How do I cover up my tattoos? Basically, the most pointless shit that I could think of. But luckily, that train was rolling on now without me. Kelsey got off with probation. Troy was in prison from 2017 to 2020, until he got released early, thanks to COVID. Kelsey seems to be clean and living a normal life, remarried with kids, and she looks happy. Not gonna lie, I do a little bit of Facebook stalking to keep tabs on her, so I really hope she's clean. While I wish her and her new family the best, I do occasionally wish that she has a raging case of hemorrhoids or something though. I never said that I was a saint and she did try to hit me with a car. When I was a teenager, I dated a guy a couple of years older than me. We'll call him N. He was always exceptionally sweet and would tell me how I deserved the world. We never really broke up. He would just move away and it would be agreed that we wouldn't date anymore. We would always end up connecting back with each other, no matter what though. Then, when I was 17, he went to jail for stabbing his stepdad. We hadn't seen each other in almost a year at that point. Afterwards, he would never talk about it in detail, but he would explain that he saw no choice at the time. His stepdad even went to his court hearings and stated that he wasn't to blame and then he made the mistake of cornering him in a violent rage. When he got out of jail, N seemed to be a different person. He was much more mature. He got a well-paying job right away. He discovered his love for cooking. He was clean and organized and well-read. He looked me up the first day he got back to town, and we slowly started developing a friendship, and eventually started casually dating. He began to stay at my house on the weekends. And then, after a few months, he needed a place to stay for about a month and a half between selling his trailer and moving into a nicer rental. 
and things honestly seemed to be going really good. We were talking about maybe moving in together, and he would hint at the idea of proposing. Then, one day, he started drinking again, and became unsettling and weird. Almost immediately after he started drinking, he began lying, and I started to get the big heebie-jeebies. He would say he was leaving for work, but then an hour later, his coworker would come to the door and ask where he was. When I would ask him about it, instead of calmly explaining that he was at his mom's on the way to work or something, he would storm off and ignore my calls for days. I immediately ended that relationship, telling him he could stay at his mom's place until his was ready to move into. A friend of mine came over to my house and helped me neatly pack up all of his stuff, and we dropped it off at his mom's for him. I can't tell you exactly why, but we also decided to put chain locks on the door that N had the key to, because even though he had given my key back, I had a completely unfounded suspicion that he had made a copy without telling me. Sure enough, that night N came to my door without calling, and without knocking, tried to let himself in. I had rested my skateboard against the door so when it opened, I'd hear the crash. I heard him cuss under his breath and just leave. The next day I came home from walking my dog with a male friend who I had been friends with my entire life and would hang out with both N and myself. And there was a picture I had painted for N on the front porch of my house. It had blood splattered all over it. I asked my friend what I should do and he was honestly kind of horrified. It was too big to fit in the garbage can, and I didn't want this blood-covered painting just sitting around my house. So later that night, we ended up burning it in the outdoor fireplace. A few days later, N called me and asked if he could come over later and talk. I said that was fine, and he told me he would be over at about 7pm. At around 8.30, he hadn't called or shown up, so I was sitting on my computer when I got a call from my aunt, who had a police scanner. N had apparently broken into a woman's home with a gun. Fearing for her life, she had shot her own shotgun at him. The police eventually caught him running in the direction of my house. He went back to jail, but only for about six months, since they couldn't find the gun that he had, and because the woman whose house he broke into didn't want to cooperate with police, he ended up getting a very light charge. Around this time, I had started dating someone else. We'll call him S., and the very first time we were out around town together, N saw us, ran up on us, ripped his shirt off challenging us to a fight. S responded just by kind of chuckling in discomfort, and we got back into the car and left. This became a semi-regular occurrence, and then one night we were cuddled up in my living room just watching TV, when we heard something hit the patio window really loudly. We went and looked around, expecting there to be a bird or something, but we couldn't find anything. The next day after S had left, I had gone outside onto the small patio and in the light of the day, I could see what we had missed the night before. It was a bullet, a bullet for a hunting rifle. It looked as if it had been thrown at the window from over the fence, not shot. I ended up moving away and ultimately marrying S. And actually randomly showed up once when we were meeting up with an all-around mutual friend, and it was pretty weird, but also pretty coincidental, so all we could do was shrug it off. A little while later, N went back to jail for breaking into another woman's home. He was released after a short stint after that one as well, 
But then, almost immediately after his release, he was all over national news because he had been caught trying to kidnap multiple children, going so far as to take one child and choke them until the father, by coincidence, found them and was able to pull him off. The young boy survived, but he was unconscious for a while, suffered no brain damage, but was pretty shaken and likely will be for his life. After N was incarcerated for that, he was arrested right after his release for the murder of a woman in the town we had grown up in several years earlier because they had only discovered her remains whilst he was in jail. Details were never publicly released because the trial is still ongoing, but the rumor is that he broke into her house, having been casual acquaintances with her, and took her life, then moved her body to a small forested area that happened to be a mutual friend's property. He also allegedly killed his cellmate while he was in jail, but he was found not guilty because the jail mishandled a bunch of evidence and the prison guards mixed up their stories a bit, so prosecution couldn't prove that he did it beyond a reasonable doubt. His cellmate was just a poor young kid, barely 19, in jail for theft. Of course, the kid should have gone to jail, but in no way should that have been a death sentence. While he's been in jail this time, N has apparently attacked multiple female prison guards by choking them. There are of course rumors around our town that some other missing people were also his doing, and there's a bunch more true stories about women catching him trying to break into their house that never made it to court because they didn't know who it was at the time, so police didn't know who to look into, and they only realized it was N after his face became plastered all over the media. I often think of the fact that I intimately knew this person, and sometimes I feel guilty for not having seen the signs. Other times, I feel creeped out that I could have been a victim of his. I feel like I somehow should have known that I was living with a potential serial killer, but until he started drinking, he truly seemed like a stand-up guy that had made bad decisions and was doing his best to make a decent life for himself. Up until very recently, I never spoke about him or even acknowledged that I knew him. Obviously, my husband knows, but he knows it makes me uncomfortable and we don't discuss it. I guess I just wanted to share this creepy encounter story, almost as a way to process it. Thanks for assisting in the process. This story takes place about two years ago. I was working graveyard in a small town casino in the cafe on Halloween night. I was dressed up as Hermione because I'm a huge Harry Potter fan, and my work has a Halloween contest, so I thought I'd put myself out there, which I never do, and get in on the fun. Now, my outfit was a skirt. Short, but I also had short leggings on underneath it, plus a polo shirt and a tie, all Gryffindor-themed. So I'm the cashier, and it's about 2 a.m. We don't usually have many customers at this time, but since it's Halloween, we were much busier than normal. So I'm just checking people out, doing my job, actually having a good time seeing everyone dressed up, when this one man steps to the counter. I can immediately tell that he's drunk, super tall, well past six feet, really buff, and bald. I remember that his total was $2.40. I don't know why I remember that, but I do. That's when he handed me a $100 bill. I told him that I'd have to get my manager to get change. He looks at me and goes, No, this is for you. I'll pay for the coffee separately. Now as a cashier, 
we hardly ever get tips. But if someone wants to tip you, they can. But no one has ever tipped me this much before, so I wasn't really sure if he was being serious. He then looks me up and down and says, It's for you to come to my room with me. I immediately hand the $100 bill back and say, No thank you. He takes out another bill, throws them both at me and goes, How about now? I repeat, No thank you once more. Luckily, security was close by and saw what was going on. The security guard came over, nicely asked the guy to pay for his coffee, and to leave. The guy takes one look at the security guard and says, If she's going to dress like a whore, she should act like one. At this point, I'm very close to tears. I've had my fair share of creepy guys in my life, but never like this. Never in my face. The security guy tells him to pay for his coffee and to leave immediately, or he'll be escorted out. The guy looks at me and says, Okay, bitch, I'll wait for you outside, and you better meet me out there. I'm just standing there not really sure what to say or do because, I'm going to be honest, I was pretty intimidated by the guy. The security guard tells him that that was a threat and immediately calls the cops. The guy goes crazy, tries to swing on the security guard, but missed, and is taken down to the ground rather easily in his inebriated state. More security comes over, the cops eventually get there, but in the meantime, the creep keeps his eyes locked on me, staring daggers right through me, before saying, why do all horrors act like this? At least I would have paid you, dumb bitch. I'm sure you get the point. This all happened so quick and escalated so quickly that I felt like I barely had time to think. At that point, I'm crying and my coworkers take me to the back. The cops come and arrest the guy. I guess he had punched a hole through the wall and tried to swing on one of the cops when they stood him up as well. The cops took my statement, and I was allowed to leave early. The same security guard walked me to my car, and I thanked him repeatedly for being there. Now where things get really f***ed up is that apparently this guy was a huge spender at the casino, so the casino didn't opt to press charges, nor did they ban him from the premises. That meant that within a week or two of this occurring, I saw him back on the casino floor and he definitely saw me. While that was our only ever verbal interaction, he would stare me down as he walked past the cafe on his way to the slots or the card room. Safe to say, he remembered exactly who I was as well. I quit shortly thereafter. While I haven't gone back to the casino since leaving, I still do reside in the same small town. Part of me is still fearful of running into this man in a place where security guards and cameras are much less numerous. So, drunk random guy, I can only pray that we never meet again. Not in your hotel room. Not anywhere. Back when I was a kid, Halloween was easily the most exciting night of the year. The entire neighborhood would come alive with spooky decorations, and every house had its own style of creepy charm. But there was one place that all of us kids absolutely dreaded. An eerie house that stood nearly at the end of our street. We called it the Darkwood Manor, and it was something straight out of a horror movie for us. The old, creaky large house, not quite a mansion, with an overgrown garden filled with gnarled trees and even a twisted iron fence. It was the kind of place that sent shivers down your spine, even on the sunniest of days. But on Halloween, 
it was an entirely different brand of terrifying. For years, my friends and I had heard rumors about the owner. No one ever had seen him, and we just figured that he was some kind of ghoul living in a haunted house. But every October 31st, we dared each other to approach the front gate. But that feeling of unease that emanated from the place always kept us at a distance. It was like the house itself warned us to stay away. As the years passed, our neighborhood's Halloween traditions continued, but Darkwood Manor remained unchanged. None of us had the courage to ring its doorbell, and it became almost a rite of passage to share campfire tales about the horrors lurking within those doors. Little did we know as kids, the stories would soon become all too real. Many years later, long after I had moved away from my childhood home and had started a family of my own, my older brother, who coincidentally still lived in the same town, shared a news story with me. It was about the owner of the Darkwood Manor, an old man by the name of Charles Blackwell, who in fact was no ghoul, but a monster of a very different kind. An older, frail man now, he had been arrested recently for crimes going back decades and involved that house that we had walked by thousands of times. Apparently, Blackwell had an affinity for the edgier things in life. Drink, drugs, ladies of the night. This meant that he surrounded himself with not the most upstanding of citizens by choice. He would invite other users, addicts, or people simply needing a roof over their head to stay with him. But once the doors would shut, evil would come out. He would plaster them with alcohol or the drug of their choice to the point that these people would be unable to form words, stand up, or obviously defend themselves. From there, he would lead them to his basement, an unfinished, earth-floored portion of his house equipped with ropes, chains, and other tools not meant for home improvement. Blackwell would leave his victims down in the basement for days or weeks, only venturing down there to harass or assault his victim, torturing them in unspeakable ways before ultimately dispatching them and concealing their remains even further under his property. Police had finally learned of what was happening when one of Blackwell's intended targets was able to escape and expose the old man for what he was. Upon entering his home, cops found all the torture devices and what would amount to a cemetery beneath his house. Once I made my way through the entire article, I had a chill under my skin and a pit in my stomach thinking about all those Halloweens we spent tiptoeing past that house. Our childish fears, unknowingly grounded in a truth that we couldn't have imagined. It was a stark reminder that sometimes, the scariest things can be right under our noses, or even at the end of the block. As a parent myself, I'm ultra-conscious of houses like the one from my childhood. We don't stop to trick-or-treat at them, we don't concoct ideas about who lives there. We simply steer clear. There really is no telling what horrible truths lie behind the spooky house that we'd rather just avoid. A few years back, my sister decided to have a surprise 30th birthday for her husband. Since he had missed a senior prom more than a decade ago, she decided to make that the theme of the party, and even book the same hall that his prom was hosted in when he was a teenager. The problem is, my brother-in-law grew up in basically the middle of nowhere, a small, rural Missouri town 
that you'd have to leave the highway and travel down about five miles of heavily wooded back roads to get to. On top of being so isolated, there's a rather large heroin problem out there, both using and dealing. It's a pretty potent cocktail, but my sister was determined to have the party there. The party was at six, and my original plan was to drive out with my sister and her friends to help set up. My sister was heavily pregnant at the time and needed all the help she could get. And then I would probably drive back home with her. However, I got called into work and had to stay until four. So I told my sister that I would drive up by myself as soon as I was done. She warned me that it was pretty easy to get turned around on those country roads, but I had Google Maps to help me and didn't worry about it. The drive up was fine. It was early October, my favorite time of year, and the scenery was surprisingly pretty. I found the place with no problem and helped with some last minute setup before my brother-in-law showed up. The party itself was a lot of fun and lasted until about 11. That's when the hall closed. I was one of the last people to leave, having stayed behind to help my sister and her friends stack chairs. Brother-in-law had overindulged at the open bar and had to be driven home by his friend. We ended up not actually heading out until nearly midnight, and by that point, I was exhausted. My sister once again warned me about being careful on the back roads, but I'd gotten up there okay, so I wasn't too concerned about the drive home. I hugged her goodbye, hopped into my car, and started working my way back towards the highway. Unfortunately, in my sleepy state, I misjudged which road I was supposed to turn off on as I reached the exit for the highway and ended up turning down an entirely different road that ran parallel to it instead. It was another heavily wooded and narrow back road. I started looking for somewhere that I could pull off in order to turn around. After driving maybe another 200 yards, I spotted a gravel embankment and decided to pull in there so I could get turned around. I pulled in and made a sharp U-turn so I could head back up the road that I just came, and as I lifted my head to check that no one was coming, I saw it in my driver's side mirror. A figure in a dark blue t-shirt and jeans with long black hair and a pale face illuminated by my brake lights. My heart jumped into my throat as I gasped in fright. But after a second of pure panic, I realized that the pale face was actually a mask. One of those cheap plastic white ones that you'd get from a costume store. I immediately felt like an idiot. Like I said, it was October, so obviously this was a Halloween decoration. This embankment probably led to someone's driveway, and the family who lived there most likely had tons of things just like it in their yard. I took a moment to unclench my fists from the steering wheel and let my heart rate get back to normal. I ended up catching a glimpse of the thing in my mirror again, and I noticed that the embankment didn't lead to a driveway. There was nothing else behind me but tall grass and trees. I briefly wondered why anyone would put a Halloween decoration out in the middle of nowhere. That's when the decoration took two steps forward, with an arm extended, appearing to be reaching for my door handle. I slammed on the gas and shot forward, eventually getting back to the main road and onto the highway. I don't think I stopped shaking until I reached my town city limits, almost a half hour later. Now looking back, I definitely wasn't in any danger. I was in a car, all the doors were locked, and I could have easily run down whoever that creep was if they had tried anything. If they'd have gotten even one step closer when panic mode set in, 
that's probably what I would have done. It was most likely just a local kid or a druggie in a crappy mask giving motorists a good scare and not really thinking about the consequences. But still, it happens to be one of the creepiest moments of my life. And to this day, I'm still nervous about driving down secluded country roads at night. I don't think you'll fault me for saying that I hope to never meet a shady mask character out on a back road ever again. Halloween is my favorite holiday, is, not was, despite the events that unfolded one crisp Hollow's Eve when I was about 16. At the time, I lived with my parents, younger brother, older stepbrother, and cousin in a big but old house that sat in a cul-de-sac close to Main Street. Behind it ran an alleyway flanked by apartments, and it had a huge yard that my basement bedroom looked out on. We lived in a small town, Crime seemed minimal in the area, and I'd made my way out that Halloween night to make the most of the best day of the year. It wasn't just what happened that night, though. It was, of course, what came after, and one small incident that came before. A few days before Halloween, my stepbrother and cousin arrived home to discover a pickup truck full of dudes taking photos of our house. Weird, but when approached, the men seemed friendly and complimented our Halloween setup. It was pretty great. That part is true. The men sped off without incident and were quickly forgotten. The big event itself was Halloween night at around 3 a.m. when my stepbrother and cousin both returned home from drinking with friends. Both had left their respective vehicles and braved the icy walk home on their own. Cousin arrived at home first, but couldn't seem to get his key into the lock, so he just sat on the porch and waited for my stepbrother to show up. He did maybe about half an hour later. After having a bit of a laugh at my cousin for being an uncoordinated goober, he went to unlock the door himself and had no luck. So they bit the bullet and called my mom, waking her up to let them in. She was of course unimpressed to be opening the door for a pair of drunk idiots at this time of night and didn't buy their story about the wonky lock. They insisted though, and to shut them up, she finally relented and tried her key. Although she too, couldn't get her key in the lock. Annoyed, tired, and now just confused, she wrote it off as a problem for tomorrow, and the three of them hit their respective hay. One other person arrived home late that night, me, though I arrived much earlier than those two and was in bed by about midnight. I woke up around 1am though, still tired, although all I could feel was anxiety, and I didn't know why. At first, I tried to tell myself that I'd just gotten a bit too into the holiday spirit and had psyched myself out. But then I noticed a shadow. It was perfectly man-shaped and cast upon my window. I turned on my bedside lamp, blinked, and it was gone. It wasn't unusual, mind you, to see the shadows of people harmlessly walking through the alley, and I told myself that that's all there was to it. But then, there's what happened after. I came home from school the next day. My parents were there, so was a locksmith, and so were the police. My parents were there because, well, they lived there. The locksmith was there because my mother had called him as the confusion over the broken lock persisted. The cops were there because the locksmith and my parents had called them when the locksmith proceeded to pull the tip of a knife out of our lock. I was relieved to see that's where the knife tip had ended up though, 
as they discovered two of our window screens had been slashed, one on our garage and one on my bedroom window. Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. Whether your pursuit involves a bachelor's, master's, or doctoral degree, GCU's learning environments are designed for supportive networking and collaboration. With over 330 academic programs, GCU provides a path to help you fulfill your dreams. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu.